We here at Libations for Everyone are proud to be sponsored by Perfectly Dosed. Perfectly Dosed is all about accessibility of access, providing creators, BIPOC founders, and entrepreneurs from all walks of life with premium, water-soluble, hemp-derived cannabinoid emulsions at affordable prices for them to bring their idea for consumable products to life. From beverages to edibles, Perfectly Dosed is the perfect ingredient partner for you. Trusted by industry-leading companies such as Fair State Brewing, Blackstack Brewing, Thesis, Amy's Cupcakes, Plift, and Dash Fire Spirits and Bitters, among many others, to infuse their best-in-class products. You can trust Perfectly Dosed to keep your products, well, perfectly dosed, whatever it may be. It's right there in the name. But now, let's start the show. a bunch of my friends drinking mass Negronis and like Charles remember remember no swearsies at least until the kids gone so I had to like put a filter on where I very seldom I can't remember the last time I was somewhere that I couldn't just say fuck but I I tried to behave and I think I did a pretty good job I I let a few F's fly and I did feel bad and like I catch myself after I said it and then it was like well now I've already said it so what's the point of being like ooh like now, I'm making it seem like it's taboo. Well, and making it a bigger deal is the thing right. that, yeah. that then causes it to really cement in there. I mean, like <laughs> any, my daughter was climbing on a, a rocking horse today and standing on it. Like we had to kind of casually walk up to that because if it's suddenly a big deal, now that'll that's be the thing. <laughs> that'll be the thing. I also feel like he that that kid looked like he was about Fortnite age, and there's no way he's not hearing all of the worst stuff anyway. Yeah, he was playing in my office online. playing Mario Kart. Oh, yeah. well, that was the other thing is um, is Mario Kart a, my a collective thing now? Yeah, you could play it uh, okay. like on on. I mean, Switch. I'm sure it, it was on my Switch, but I think there might be there might be even an iPhone version, but I have it on Switch, so I guess I didn't I can't keep track of all that. That's great trash but talking. His mother Liz said. Um, can he play some of your games? And I said, yeah, of course. I was like, I have everything. What does he want to play? And then he's like, well, there's a switch right there. And I showed him the games on it. And then um, he was telling me the games he plays. And he said, uh, and I, I was surprised to hear it, um, knowing them. I just, I, I didn't know what to expect. I guess you don't know what people's parenting practices are. But yeah. he said, uh, I was like, what games do you play? He's like, well, I play PlayStation. I play um, Horizon Zero Dawn. And I was like, I love that game. And it's not very aggressive. Right. And then he said, uh, I also play God of War. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> oh, you play God of War. All right, well, there's Mario Kart. <laughs> Let's start with Mario Kart and see where we go from here. <laughs> I, I love the idea of, because he probably identifies with a kid character in that. Yeah, you know, the one that's sure. like, fuck you, dad. Atreus, yeah. I don't want to do your thing. Mm-hmm. Like, like the whole, especially the second one, the whole, yeah. the whole point of it is like, I don't want you to be my dad anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like I, dude, I get that at his age. Yeah. That's a hundred percent where I would have yeah. been. <laughs> you still get that, I think. Yeah, well, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Stop it, Charles. You ain't my dad. You're not my real dad. <laughs> and it's like there's a part of me that you know I've got a two year old at home, and she was born after the bar I've closed down because mm. of the pandemic. After we closed, so she'll never get to know that part of me. After 20 years working in the service industry, yeah. where everybody around me swore all the time. Like, I'm not magically going to change that, but also I kind of want to inject a little bit of that culture into her because, sure. heaven forbid, she decides she wants to cook or bartend or, like, I, I want her to be the ringer. Uh, I, that's so yeah. good. Yeah. That's like, I'm not saying this. there's a, a direct correlation here, but you often see from former athletes or, you know, like a boxer or a baseball player or a pro wrestler that if they have kids who never watched them perform, that they have to convince them how cool they used to be. 
Like yeah. I was the coolest fucking dude in this city at one point. <laughs> there's a there's a, one of my favorite stories uh, I've ever read about parenting because as somebody who doesn't have children, I'm I'm kind of fascinated by the whole thing. And uh, it was uh, Trey Parker, co-creator of South Park, um, who uh, married a woman who had a son from a previous relationship, and uh, he's at the time of the interview was 15, and he called Trey Parker a derp. And he stopped and he's like, all right, kid, like, I'm cool with you. Like, you're not my dadding me or whatever, but like, you can't use a word that I made up. Yeah. And the kid's like, what are you talking about? You did not. And he goes, just Google it on your phone right now. And he pulls it up and in Wikipedia, it's like, you know, term created by Trey Parker and Matt Stone on the show South Park. And he goes, whatever, derp. And like stormed out of the room. And I didn't was like, matter. Yeah. It didn't like, register. <laughs> You don't mind using that as a tool against the guy who created it because no matter what, like your parents just aren't, they're never going to be. Cool. It's the world's now. Yep. It belongs to the world. I don't. Yeah. I To weaponize against <laughs> the man who invented the term. Yeah. Also, I feel like every kid should go through a little rebellion. Absolutely. Like that's another experience that you should experience. Mm -hmm. Like you should internalize that moment when you realize that your parents don't know everything and use that to, to stoke the fire a little bit. Yeah. So mini rum springers, you know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like little, little baby sample platters of rum, single serving rum springer. Yeah. That's the, there we are. Okay. That's well, the perfect term. Well, then, I'll note that. I'll note that. Also it's the ages of 15 to 24. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. the extended rum springer. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're instead of instead of drinking it all in one one weekend, you're slowly sampling it yeah. more and more as you go. Or you become an addict. Yeah. Which and you can't quit it. That's most of my twenties. I would <laughs> go with 100. percent Like yeah, 14 or 15 until like I don't know 30 or maybe now. Thirty. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I feel like that was when I started shifting a little. Yeah. You know, when. Yeah, recently I had a conversation uh, last Friday at Social Hour here at the uh, classy confines of Club Caraway. Here we are. Talking to you, fellow member Julio, about the year that the light went on. And maybe we can have that as a future conversation topic. I think it's an interesting one. And I think uh, particularly men define like a particular age that they had the light go on where you were like, oh, wow, I don't have to be angry all the time because I, I had that experience in my mid-20s where I was like, oh, hey, I just I don't have to just be pissed all the time. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Wow. And it was like the universe gave me permission. It wasn't like I cured myself of my angst. It was just one day, somehow, it occurred to me, oh, you can just not be the person that you've been since your teens. You can be the new you that is going to mature into full-on adulthood, which... Let's be honest, I'm still doing. Well, we all still are. That's the way, I, that's I the way hope, life works. And the sooner you figure that out, the more self-aware you can be. I hope I die doing that. Yeah. Still trying to figure it out. You and know, I wonder like, too, like, does the service industry prolong that period, right? Like you get to be sure. a toddler mm. with an unlimited amount of alcohol and like you just get paid cash. Mm -hmm. Like you, you're not responsible. You're not like doing a lot of healthy things. And I mean, for a lot of us, I think the the place where we turned that switch was like either the day we stopped drinking or the day we left the industry, mm -hmm. you yeah. know, like I, I think that like I use the term never, never land yeah. to talk about the service industry in both a positive and a negative way. Right. Like I think it's a fountain. Of I wanted youth. to note that, that it can be a positive. There are positive notions and negative. notions. Yep. Yeah. Like you can use it as a positive to, to remember to stay young and to 
keep interacting and to know that your mentality freedom of expression yeah creativity you can do whatever you want you can create your own schedule you can work as much or as little as you're allowed to with your job like it's all up to you but yeah the flip side of it is it can also trick you if you allow it to it can trick you into thinking you're young and invincible forever and that whatever ridiculously toxic lifestyle you've accrued is okay because you can slowly shed more and more people that would say maybe this is an issue and you could always find someone younger and crazier who will say that what you're doing is cool and you can keep going down that road it has felled many a service person facts well and there's this like baseline fitness level that you kind of pick up because you're carrying kegs and cases of stuff you're on your feet for 10 hours at a day and you just forget that like yeah you have triceps because you shake cocktails for three hours straight, five <laughs> yeah. days a week. Yeah. Like, it's not because you're magic or you're gifted, and then when that goes away, you still need to keep moving. Yeah. You can't, like, it's not magic anymore. I would love to watch myself right now carry four full buckets of ice and see if I could just do it up two flights of stairs like I used to every day. Yeah. I, f- I feel like I would cave under that, and I don't feel like I'm any less strong Like when I look at myself in the mirror, but 100% as soon as you get out of the practice. And then the rest of your internal organs are the same way. It is a, a, a very unique thing. And I also think it's, it's really fascinating to see how common that is across cultures. Like that, that vibe when I talk to people when I travel is also very similar where you can find incredible islands of misfit toys for better or for worse. You know, you find some of the most fascinating artists and then also the people that are barely hanging out. That's like half Mm -hmm. of the plot of White Lotus is like the people who are working there and their depravity, right? Like (laughs) that's the entertaining, the bear, (laughs) like it's, it's in things that aren't overtly service industry focused. Like you see that, that level of like, you know, toddler behavior. Speaking, speaking of the bear, as we have another person uh, with service industry uh, uh, legendary time on their roster, what, did, you, did you feel a little like PTSD watching that show? Or did you feel like, I'm glad I'm out? What did you, for the first season? I never watched it. Okay. okay. I haven't cool. watched it yet. Cool, cool, I cool. mean, I, I think I will. Um, I just always had shows, like I never had a gap in shows where I was like, okay, now I'm going to do it. Okay. Like I have to be more intentional to want to watch it, you know, like, um, I don't know. My, my so memories not in, are, are not still, avoiding it. no, I'm not avoiding okay. it. I think I maybe did at the, at the beginning, but like not anymore. Yeah. I, mean, mm. I, it hit me on both ends of it for me. Like it was on one hand, the first episode, I was so happy because I felt like, oh my God, somebody got it right. And then as it progresses, that same sentence got a little darker in its inflection where I was like, Oh my God, Mm. somebody got this right. Cause like I would start like visibly wincing while I was watching episodes because I remember being in his headspace. I remember Mm. those moments. I remember watching somebody break in front of me. And that is, I'm really glad that they showed that because it doesn't romanticize it at all. Interesting portrayal. Yeah. Unique portrayal. But got it. It it dug up. One. It 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 dragged a rake through the muck at the bottom of the lake, and there were a lot of feelings that I had suppressed yeah. for a while that kind of came floating back up. It, programming like that is interesting too, because I think it's important that it was created and formatted the way that it was. But as someone, you know, I'm peripheral. I'm like the N64 controller to libations and hospitality because I'm just outside of <laughs> the facility. 
Like I'm playing the video game, you are the video game. You know what I mean? So I look at it. As, it's like you know, uh, a real guitarist plays Guitar Hero, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? You know, yeah. as another peripheral. Blue, red, blue, blue, red, blue. Yeah, but it's, it it is very interesting because I think it also speaks to um, the fact that people who like while they're in the muck, and you can both probably speak to this. While you're in the muck, you probably don't see it. You you really you feel it, but you don't see it the way that people on the outside see it. Because people who watch The Bear that have never worked in a kitchen are probably thinking, why would you do that for a living, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there were a lot of times <laughs> that I'd have those conversations, usually in a bathroom or on a smoke break. Okay. So you were self-aware. Like, what if I don't go back? That's always my, <laughs> my fascination is always, what if I just left right now? Yeah. And the thing that always held, held me to it you was that- through the window. I don't, well, <laughs> there's that. <laughs> but also like- fuck like the only person the only people i'd heard of were my coworkers. because mm. who you're mad at is like your managers or your owners or your family in effect yeah but you're <laughs> like say so you're mad at mom so you're gonna torture your brothers and sisters like that just doesn't doesn't work so you go back and you slog it out together and then you numb until the next day mm -hmm. like what? you said that's the beauty of it right? yeah like yeah. that's the whole reason i got into it was because you know i was working at like a, a counter service fast casual place you know, that's been around for, for a long time. Cafe Latte mm -hmm. awesome. Um, and I really, like, I was chugging through, you know, cookbooks at home. Like, I got Jacques Pepin's Complete Techniques, Volume 1 and 2, and I was just cooking recipe to recipe to recipe. Mm. I got a stage, like, a, a long-term stage at Heartland, in the uh. old location, and yeah. I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to culinary school. And I, I wasn't naive enough to think that culinary school would be, like, the education, you know? Like, I, I knew enough about working and what you learn on the job to know that like that would be where my education eventually came from. But I also was like looking for a place where I could go to culinary school and like turn that into the career, you know, mm -hmm. like where would the networking happen there? And like, how can I make myself just so available to any opportunity there that like it was eventually going to turn into something great. And it certainly worked out that way. Um, but also like, you know, on the, at the same time I was reading Anthony Bourdain, you know, like that's, and he, he kind of does the same thing. Like your description of the bear is a lot of how Anthony Bourdain talks about Absolutely. the service industry and, and even more poetic than anybody I've ever heard before since, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, he doesn't sugarcoat it. And also like, it's kind of romantic. Like there's, there's a, a bravado to like the fact that you can stand there and, and chop chives for 10 hours straight, you know, like. That's part of it. That's part of I think, it. I think a, a major part of the challenge is that it's probably difficult to depict that in in a successful fashion. How many food movies have you seen that you cared for in the least little bit? And we've talked about that on the show before, that Hollywood is ineffective at portraying what it is to be a chef or what a kitchen looks like. So I think that's one thing. Uh, that was one of the um, achievements of The Bear is that it it looks like a real operational kitchen. You know there is there are bouts of uh of of ridiculousness or, you know it, there there are a couple of things that happen on the show where I was like that's kind of cartoony. Listen, don't let don't let 100% truth get in the way of a good story. I'm I'm here <laughs> yeah, for that yeah. content. The I'll say uh, this isn't even a spoiler, but the gun thing. I was like what? Yeah. Like, yeah. What does it have to do with Okay. Anyways, it, it, yeah, it's a worthy it's a worthy watch. I think. Yeah, uh, you, you'll get, I'll get into it. it. I'll get into yeah, it. You'll get around sure. to it. And the second season is out or coming out soon. It's coming out soon from yep. the time of recording. I think yeah, the, I believe it's a, a, a this summer. Okay. Yeah. 
Uh, well, while we're there, because I want to keep tracking that career, but uh, do you want to introduce yourself to everybody Absolutely. and kind of say what, what you've brought with us? Because yeah. I want to have a sip of this. Yeah. Um, my name is Peter Schweigert. Um, i longtime service industry professional from the Twin Cities and around, but um, a couple of years ago, got together with my business partner and we uh, started developing a product we called DryWit. Um, the, my passion for the NA space is, is vast. Um, as somebody who doesn't drink, but also somebody who cares a lot about hospitality. Um, and so wanted to find something that fit into that market. So they're, they're a line of NA wine alternatives um, that are kind of approached from a different, a different lens and a different viewpoint. Can you talk a little bit about this one? Yeah. So the first one we're drinking is Pippi. Um, certainly the lightest of them um, by design. You know, we wanted to find something that kind of fit into that, into the slot that you would otherwise be drinking champagne, you know, oysters, caviar, mm. um, cigar smoke, whatever, like whatever you're around, like this is, this is the thing that can just kind of be like lingering and fresh and bright. Um, and it's, it's just the, like the sunshine in a glass. Mm. Um, so the backbone of it is verjou, which is unripened wine grape juice. Um, and then there's a single botanical white pine that, um, is important to Minnesota's history Absolutely. and like our region. Um, and also just like my childhood too. Yeah, these are these are very very good. I had first had each of them uh, when you and I judged beside one another at Iron Bartender because it ended up being the homage secret ingredient for year round. Mine was Malord, of course. I think we probably brought that up on the <laughs> podcast before, and I was instantly struck by uh, the impressive depth of flavor that is contained within each of them. You don't necessarily miss the alcohol, and we know that. Alcohol brings something something to the table in regard to like depth and flavor, but these have a great deal of depth. And uh, I like that you mentioned cigar smoke because I had just prior to you arriving, Peter, I'd finished um, smoking a cigar downstairs, and that um, acid characteristic and and the the tannins and and the depth of of characteristics and this the nice citrus quality. It's kind of got like a little bit of pear to it. Mm-hmm. It's really beautiful after having smoked a cigar. Cool. Yeah, I I got like green apple skin and pear right off the right off the bat and i love how bright that is and that absolutely embodies the space of what i would be looking for if i was going to pair that with any of the things that you just listed like my mind just started running with different things and really it the more the older that i've gotten and and maybe the more i pay attention to my palate i'm starting to realize that it's a lot less about the effect of the alcohol and a lot more about i like having interesting and active pairings of things and if I got poured a glass of this and wasn't told what it was, I don't even know if I would question that. Right. You know, I would just be like, oh, this is delicious. Like, where is this from? Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that is, is spectacular. Um, but before we get too far down that road, I, I do want to dial back because I actually, I don't know your, your path. Yeah. But I felt a weird amount of kismet because Jacques Pepin was the first uh, on PBS. His cooking show was the first show uh, that I ever watched where I fell in love with watching somebody cook. And to this Same. day, when I like whisk eggs uh, for, I, I, I try not to let the fork <laughs> touch the bowl because I remember him yeah. saying, you always have the fork away from the bowl. Uh, we always just try to uh, go as fast as you can, but not out of control. Please do not hit, you know, we're just doing And I listen to the sound of that. And if I catch myself hitting it, I feel like the little Jacques Pepin pops up on my mm. left shoulder and he's like, what are no, you no, doing? No, no, no. And he like smacks me with a whisk. And then he goes... <laughs> 
Yeah. But then, <laughs> then Anthony Bourdain was, was who opened it up to me. Yeah. Uh, my first uh, downtown Minneapolis bartending job, uh, one of my coworkers gave me Kitchen Confidential and changed my life overnight. I stayed up till like four in the morning reading and I almost finished it. I fell asleep before I finished the whole book. I think I read it twice within six months. Yeah. And like ravenously. It had to it had to be. And it's a thing I've gifted a bunch. Yeah. You know, it's just it's like a part of of your history. But did you ever watch Great Chefs? I did not. No. Oh my gosh. It was on like at three thirty in the afternoon, right Mm -hmm. when I'd be getting home from school. And you know I I was allowed an hour of TV a day, but both my parents worked so we were home for like two hours in the afternoon. And I didn't, we didn't have cable, but like, that was the thing I could connect with. Sure. And man, like just to be able to see, like, you know, it was mostly in Europe, um, but the little theme song that they had, and it was, you know, oftentimes it was, it was somebody narrating what was happening because the chef was speaking French or German. Um, But man, it was just like, that was the thing that like spawned papers throughout, throughout my college experience. And it was just this like drumbeat in the back of my head between that and Jacques Pepin, like. Man, I just I couldn't I couldn't get away from it. And, well, and that know. makes a lot of sense now then why Latte Da into Heartland. Like that you're almost like you're echoing that experience as best we could at that time period mm-hmm. here in the Twin Cities. So how long were you with, with Heartland? Okay. So I mean, you know, I I bounced around a, a fair amount. I okay. was I was at, at Cafe Latte from like two thousand one until two thousand six. Um, and in, in two thousand six I was also at the original Heartland. Um, I was okay. working two days a week there, mm. staging, and then I was working three long shifts uh, a week at at, uh, at Cafe Latte. Okay. And then from there, I went. I moved to New York and went to the French Culinary Institute, um, partly because I didn't want to spend two years in a school environment learning something that I could learn a lot better in a kitchen. Sure. Um, but I wanted to like get into a place where I could just be like, you know, it was a springboard to the, the rest of my career. Yeah. Um, and it certainly was, you know, like I, I made the, the one award that I, I like laugh about, especially you'll probably relate to this, but um, Ben that like, there's, I, I won the, the, like the, the guy who was always in the school award. <laughs> like, I don't think there was anybody in my culinary school who was present in that building more than me yep. because I was there till 10 o'clock many nights I got there at 7.30 for my classes to start. There was no way that, I mean, there's, there's nobody else who could have been there as much as I was. Um, and like, but through that, you know, each, uh, I had my classes and those ended at three and then I had an internship after that. And through that, you know, like Dave Arnold was, was the guy who I, I had as a, as a mentor there. Um, and, you know, he was, he, he later went on to, to open existing conditions in New York um, hosts a podcast called uh, Cooking Issues mm-hmm. and just like, I mean, wildly knowledgeable, but also yeah. just like knows everybody. So we did all sorts of dumb crap there. Um, we did cocktails for 1500 at MoMA. Um, we wow. did like, we, we shot a, a TV pilot with Bar Raffaele. Um, <laughs> we like, and, and this is just like me, a culinary school guy who like doesn't have a dollar to my name and like yeah. is just hanging out in New York City. And, but from there, you know, like I immediately got, a job working on top chef which was filming there and the executive culinary producer was working at the school um and they happened to be filming two blocks from my house so i got a job doing that and through that you know the one of the days that like i probably talk about more than most days outside of my daughter's birth is like um the day that we went to rochester for a foo fighters concert and grant ackett's was the the judge on that episode of top chef so we were backstage for foo fighters 
and then get up the next morning, drive eight hours into the city, and there's Grant Ackett's, and he, like, passes me a card, and he's like, yes, I got an internship for you, just call, you know, like, just call in a few months, and it was, like, pretty, it was, it was an incredible time period, because, like, I got to not be in kitchens, yep. and then, like, the first kitchen I'm thrown into is a Michelin three-star. Unbelievable. Um, and that was a time of, like, a fair amount of change there, too. Um, Chef was, had very famously had tongue cancer, yeah. and so, like, that was kind of him getting back into it. He was able to taste more, but, like, oh, wow. still really sensitive, and the team was really lean. Dave so it was Barron, right at that time yeah, when Dave, that occurred. Dave Barron know. was a chef um, who left there to open next with, with yeah. Ackett's yeah. and then moved out and opened a Michelin One Star and another restaurant out in, uh, out in L.A., um, and just like, you know, so everybody was really tight. It was a, a small team. I think when I was working the line, there were eight of us outside of the sous chefs and wow. chef. And like e before and after, there were close to 20 people in that space at the same time. So we just got like a lot of hands-on attention. Um, and it was really cool. Um, but then I, I left Chicago and moved back home because, you know, prior to that, I'd spent two months uh, fishing and trapping and hunting and cooking, you know, and like, it felt like Minnesota was kind of on the edge of doing more with food in a way that was like uniquely Minnesota. And that was about 2009. And I think I was right. You know, yeah. there was, there was a lot that happened since then. And I was really happy to be sliding back in here at a point where I could, I could have a greater impact than if I was just in Chicago. When you, when you ended up here, did you go directly into the bar side of things or did you stay in the kitchen side? I was looking for a kitchen that was hiring that like, that I felt I could, kind of hit some of those same levels of learning. Um, but, like, really nobody was hiring in a, in a very aggressive way, um, you know. And I was only in Chicago for seven months, so, like, I didn't – had I been there for three years, like, I probably I, I would have gotten a sous chef position at a few different places. Mm. But I didn't, I, I didn't have that level of skill or, you know, competence or – Were you knowledge. at Alinea for the duration while you yeah. were there? Yeah. Okay. I started as a stage and got hired within about a month. Okay, amazing. Um, and so – yeah, I came home and I, I was like, where are two places I can learn and still like be in some some form of like cutting edge knowledge and, and, and growth. And so I started butchering and, and bartending both. Um, I worked at Town Talk Diner um, right right after uh, Niver left. Uh, they had sold the business to um, the Theros Group, who owns yep. Rudolph's and, um, and they own the St. Clair Broiler. Um, but. And then I was working at Clancy's and my car got stolen and I was living in St. Paul and I couldn't make it to Clancy's, but I could make it to town talk. So then I just started bartending more. That I, are you of the, the ilk like me where you can kind of look back and say, like, for me, I always say I'm, I'm not the smartest, but nobody's going to like out hustle me. And I just put myself out there as much as possible. And I think that just by fielding so much more time with people and so much, so many more moments of, possibilities where I don't all of the weird lucky breaks that I've had I don't necessarily think I was any more qualified than anybody else but if you if you make enough connections with people there's just the law of averages alone something is going to filter down where somebody's going to give you a shot and I, I obviously like I mean given your background you are also very clearly talented and very smart but I just feel like if you are the one who's there morning, noon, and night, if you're the one who's pushing that much, eventually something is going to come across your plate just because you're going to come across that many and more capability people. Capability meets opportunity. Yeah. You need some of each. Like, uh, as Kieran would say, creating your own luck. Mm. 
Well, and there's this other element too that like both television work, uh, you know, especially when you're producing a TV show that like, you know, it's every three days or four days you're putting an episode out there and you get like one day off for every eight or nine days that you, you are shooting and you get paid really well. Um, but like there's no break and it's two months of that and then you're off. So, you know, mm. hundred hour weeks where you're just kind of on your social life is sitting in the back drinking sponsored beer and yeah. whatever leftovers the, the, the team didn't cook with. Right. You know, like, oh, here's a bunch of uni today. Like, great. Let's just let's cool. just go go nuts. Furnished um, by Sapporo. We're ripping lines of uni <laughs> yeah. backstage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like, oh, gosh, we had so much good fish um, and, and fruit. We had an, a brunch episode and it was like four thousand dollars worth of fruit from the, the green <laughs> oh. market. And it was it was incredible. Melons, like I've never tasted. That's before. like my bliss. Right Berries there. everywhere. Yeah. Like, Greek gods. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. eating fruit. <laughs> just, just laying back like Dionysus, just yeah. eating yeah. grapes, but yeah. stems and all, like I'm making grappa inside myself. <laughs> but like anytime I, I was in the city, like I think I got the job because I was the person, like I had shown that I can just work that hard. Yeah, I was shown that like I can just show up and do the thing no matter what, and I was going to be cheery and like down to do whatever. Like no job was too small. Um, and then, you know, same thing when I, when I got, uh, when I approached Grant, it was like, I was exhausted. I'd just driven 10 hours in a mm. box truck from Rochester down to the city and hit city traffic. And it was, you know, nine 30 and he was sitting backstage and I, you know, walked up and was, didn't shot my shot. And he was like, yeah, you, if you can do this, you can do that. Right. Like you can show up and be in my kitchen. Oh. Um, but yeah. And, and it was like every step along the way was just like filled with fear, you know, like about like, Oh my God, am I, am I just some like kid from a small town in Northern Minnesota? Like, what am I doing here? You know, this, this doesn't feel right. But yet like I was just maintain a positive attitude and like it, it all kind of kept working out. So amazing. Uh, and then how long did the transfer take from, did you go straight from town talk to Marvel? No, uh, Heartland was opening in the new location in uh, lower town. Sure. Um, and so I left town talk, um, to go open that location. You know, I mean, Town Talk was just, like, creative. Everything was a yes, you know, like, creatively, food, you know, the, the rich food, the, the alcohol, like, everything was a yes all the time. And so to, like, get away from that and be at a place where it's a little bit more restrained, um, I felt like that was a good opportunity for me to learn and also an opportunity for me to, like, hopefully slow down a little bit, too. Well, and for our listeners out there uh, who didn't get a chance to experience Heartland when it was open, in our community, that was really the first uh, place that that tried to introduce the idea of working with local farms around the area and bringing in what was in season uh, and bringing in non-mass farmed proteins and working working a lot with small farmers. When Farm to Table meant something before we used the correct. term yeah, Farm yeah. to Table. You know, to <laughs> tell you the truth, I think that 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 Lenny Russo might have been the person that actually introduced that term to me. Um, but but it was it was such a, a forward thinking concept that I have to imagine that it was like a perfect editing procedure because you had to look you you had to eliminate so many other things and just look at what was local and then try and push through from there, which then to me at least would cause you to be maybe a little bit more creative because with less there is more. You know, instead of just throwing 27 things into every single dish, you want to let these local ingredients shine and, and let sort of the, the farms themselves shine through your preparations. The greatest creativity I've ever been around consistently has been around restric restrictions. Mm. Other, uh, you know, there's, there's restrictions mm. 
at least for the way that I am creative, like I really thrive in places where it's like, you can't use any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Here's the five things you can use. What can you do with that? Sure. Um, you know, dry wit's no exception. Yeah. You know, like this, this, anytime you kind of enter into a marketplace where there's like anything goes, you kind of need to figure out your niche because otherwise you'll just, you'll just kind of like wash out. Um, and I see that a lot in other beverage markets too, that like um, you can just go and grab a flavor house and they'll, package something and you know it tastes okay you know like is it cheap is there celebrity attached to it that's what sells and like i've never been one to to leverage too much on the easy way um and also like why would i go to a flavor house because that would just take away all the fun and creativity that i get to do in the process because i'm a process nerd so yeah i i I love you saying that as well about restraint because restraint usually is kind of like a, a thing that comes later to uh, people in a lot of creative pursuits but it's like the more you know the less you need because you you understand and you have confidence in your capabilities it's like a samurai a samurai needs one swing of the sword Mm -hmm. right instead of 30 swings of the sword so it's i think that's a important lesson that people learn at different different uh junctures throughout their vocations that's very poignant yeah i mean it kind of it kind of hits in the same vein as like somebody cramming for a paper Right. Like mm-hmm. it may not be your most beautiful work. And if you had been able to like tap into that energy three weeks prior and then spend all that time editing it, like my God, that the the amount of brilliance that was wasted on like procrastination is mind boggling. Mind boggling. I will say though, the flip side of that coin is I also sometimes prefer a time constraint as my editor. Because it forces yeah. me to be honest. Some people work better where, that way. Yeah, where if studies. <laughs> my some of my worst papers in college were when I wanted to get ahead of it and I wrote it and then I would get bored and then I'd look back at it and I'd start fucking with it. And by the end of it, I wouldn't even have a vision of like where I started and I'm like, I think this is good. Mm. And then I'd turn it in and they're like, I don't know what this is. And then you know, I would stay up all night and write a paper and then I would hand it in and well, and also I was in I was in if you can call political science a creative field as it is trying to argue people into seeing that you're right, uh, th- that creative side, I was, I was much more effective if I was in the moment. The moment that I give myself mm-hmm. a lot of time to fuck with it was when it got bad. Well, you're and then there's no, surprise, there's no surprise then it. that you got like into the start of service, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a time constraint and it's four o'clock. 100%. Guests are walking in the door at 4.30. You got to be ready to go by four or else there's not, there's nothing tonight. Or every restaurant I've ever opened yeah. where you're yeah. literally screwing things down and wiping things as the first guests are walking in or you have a part of the area kind of cordoned off because you're still working on it. I love that. I, the minute, if, one time I opened a place and we were ready about a week ahead of time. And we still ended up changing a bunch of stuff because nobody felt comfortable with it. <laughs> like, this can't be right. Yeah. We must have done something wrong. Well, well should we uh, cheers some yeah. cheers. dry wit? Hey. Ooh. Lovely. All right, topic number one. So we're going to start off with some silly shit while we're talking about obsessing over details. Peter... How many tabs are open on your phone, and what are you constantly researching for better or worse? So I've got two, I've got two browsers. Yeah. Um, one of them has a counter at the bottom, so I know that's 19. <laughs> okay. And the other one, maybe 30. Sure. And a lot of them are business-related, like things that I know that I will I periodically read 
And a lot of them are recipes that I'm like about 30% convinced that my, my toddler will eat it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, because, you know, we're just talking about my career and, you know, I've, I've been in a lot of like really fine and beautiful places for food and you have a kid and that kind of all goes out the window. Yeah. So, um, in a brilliant way, like it's having a kid is so humbling. Um, but like, she just wants to eat things that aren't mixed together. So then it becomes mm. the, for me, the hunt right now is like, where can I get the perfect berry? Where can I get the perfect apple? You know, like how can I teach her what it, what, you know, what greatness is in the food world? If I'm not the one cooking it, like, you know, then I have to rely on the farmers. And so strawberries just hit last weekend at the farmer's market yep. and it's everything. Um, but yeah, I've got a lot of tabs and that's, that's pretty much all it is. And a lot of, a lot of food. It sounds like a lot of food, like, you know, Instagram recipes from people who are, sure. you know, with names like yummy toddler food and <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. And they're, they're great. Like I, it's stuff I want to eat. Yeah. Well, um, that's good. If you both want to eat it. Absolutely. Well, cause I'm the one who's going to eat it if you're not. Right. You know? Someone's yeah. Then Someone's someone can have it. it. Yeah. Somebody can enjoy it. <laughs> Gosh, like toddler pinwheels where you take a sheet of puff pastry and a schmear of uh, cream cheese and some broccoli and cheddar cheese on top of it, roll it up, cut it into rounds and bake it off. Like my daughter won't touch them, but I've had six or seven in the last <laughs> few days. They're great. I was just thinking yeah. like, man, that sounds really good. It's great. Right. It's I'll like a, those up right now. Like a nice adult hot pocket. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thin slice. So it looks good. <laughs> yeah. And I love that the uh, punchline was, well, she won't eat them, but I had a bunch of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she had a she had a cup of peanut butter today for lunch, and like you Let's know, go. so did Quam. <laughs> My dog did. <laughs> she was a good girl today, and she was on her own a lot. So uh, we have we we take Kongs and we put peanut butter inside yeah, of it. Yeah. And yeah. if I even touch the freezer, she'll come out of any room and be like, "Is it for me? Can I get mm-hmm. it?" Ears up, tail wagging, like, "Uh." I'm like, "Nah, I'm just getting out ice cubes." Nope. Yeah. All right. Not this time. You get a sketchy look and she'll walk away. Yeah. Yeah. Saunter <laughs> off. <laughs> I wanted to be really like proud because normally I'm really like on top of closing open apps and closing down windows. I don't like having a lot of browser windows open. Oh. If I have more than like seven or eight, I get weirdly. And I'm, by the way, just no, I have like 17,000 unread emails in my Gmail. So oh, this isn't yeah. like a control thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, just for whatever reason, I, I just feel like, I don't know, maybe my, my old, old, old laptop functioned better if there was less open and I just still do that. But when you, when you ask that question, I open it up and I have 39 tabs open on my browser. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of food stuff in there. Uh, there's like where to get good salmon, uh, there, <laughs> there's a best mileage app for people who okay. drive a lot for work. Yeah. Um, there's a tab open for uh, Jerbo Jeans 2023. Oh my God. From a prior conversation on the podcast, probably. Uh-huh. Because we brought up Jerbo's twice. Because I was like, <laughs> hey, uh, are they still around? Because yeah, if they were, I would rock Jibos? an X-brand pair of yeah. Jerbo's. Uh, Taco John's current menu. <laughs> I'm not proud of all of these. but Taco uh, John's, I feel you. That's a pride moment. Uh, there's a there's a baseballism is a, an apparel company that makes baseball related things, and they have started a new Ken Griffey line. Mm-hmm. And Ken Griffey Jr. was cool. my favorite baseball player in high school, and I'm still obsessed with him. It's like Roots of Fight. They have a bunch of different athletes that yeah. they do stuff for that looks pretty cool, actually. It's just like it's kind of rad. Um, 
how, how to spell yaitust because I used oh, yeah. ice cream and I wasn't. I'm always. How the fuck do you spell that? I'm word? always confused because there. The J in Scandinavian is like a, an I Y sound, but sometimes they'll use a J and an I and then an E back to back. And I, for whatever reason, I've been eating yaitust as long as I can remember. I can never remember how to spell it. So then I always have to Google it, which is dumb. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> uh, a couple memes that I made and what's the name of the guy who plays Noho Hank on Barry. <laughs> so I'm kind of all over the place in my, okay. in my browser okay. searching. It's usually all related to trying to find answers to weird trivia questions I create in my mind where I'll think of a reference and then I don't quite know if I'm right. And then I have to look that up uh, or some sort of like, how do I cook this the best way? And then I'll look through like 12 recipes and I'll make some weird Frankenstein's monster out of all of them. And then that's, that's usually where I end up. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I am way worse than all of you. Nice. I am. How many? I'm clean, uh, clean plate club when it comes to notifications, uh, no notifications on my email boxes, social media and stuff. I always just wipe that. I like to see no notifications on my main screen. I have a few right now because we're podcasting, Mm -hmm. but my, okay, well, Let's let's get into this. So I have ten tab groups. Ooh! And in my main tab group, I have 190 tabs open currently. <laughs> I recently discovered Jeez. the max is 200. Now that they have tab groups, they actually max you out. Um, I'm gonna just for everybody listening. I didn't know tab groups were a thing. So yeah, I I've, yeah. I, we're we're I feel like so, I want to get into this. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I play 3D chess, and you're skipping four and going to 5D now. So I have things for various clients. I have things for my business. I have tra- like a travel uh, tab. I have. Uh, a tab for like a new business I'm working on. So these on. aren't these aren't bookmarks to the sites. These are actual these open are tabs. Groups of, so see this. Yep. I click travels, then it's stuff Fascinating. about travel for like the Euro trip that right. we're embarking upon. That's just to keep it organized because I have so many tabs and I don't always put them where they need to go because I'm like I'll get right back to that. But the next thing you know, I open six or seven more. Would would that serve the same as bookmarking something just without the step of actually? I know I'm less likely to return to something if I bookmark it. Okay. Uh, and you know what? Like, if you get a new phone, and now actually it saves all your tabs. When sure. you get a new iPhone, it used to not. It would just be me saying, you know what? Clean slate. All right. And when I get a new device, I'll sometimes look through, and that's the time that I can really housekeep and be like, I didn't need that. I don't need to read that. I've already read that. Uh, but it's interesting if you peel through here. It, it is a bizarre assortment. Of, of subjects and features and articles. A lot of stuff is like long form. I don't have time right now. I'll read it later. And also that's an indicator whether it's worthwhile for me. If I came back to it, it's probably worthwhile. If I didn't come back to it, then I probably never wanted to read it to begin with. But if it's buried at number nine out of 190, then I might not see it for a couple of years, you know, <laughs> or, uh, or six months or what have you. It, it's so funny though, because my, my bookmarks tab is identical to what you're talking about. Sure. Uh, and I do the same thing. Like I literally have long form articles I don't have time to read right now as a a bookmark folder and then when i'm like bored or if i'm on a plane i'll download a bunch of them to my phone and then i have stuff to read it's like i create a book for myself to read i guess yeah i've got like coffee tools on here i have um some some tabs for uh projects i'm working on a lot of clothing stuff like maybe i'll get that jacket pro wrestling stuff like there's it's a vast assortment an article about how lonely young people are now like a bunch of bunch of stuff it's a it's a wild story but i would say for the most part the things that i 
will like okay so on insta i'll go to an ig i'll click the little open in browser button for a lot of food stuff mm-hmm. specifically yep. that's me committing well i want to read this for sure so i'm going to pop it open in my actual browser because the second you close it in instagram it's gone forever so by and large when i'm doing that it's for something food related um so that would probably comprise i don't know probably 40 percent of those tabs have something to do with food and beverage crazy well, and I just was looking through, and some of my titles are Easy Bacon and Egg Muffins, Easy yeah. Oatmeal Bars with Blueberry and Carrot. Like, yeah. I'm clearly not cooking for a full-grown human yeah. yet. But that also sounds delicious. But it's great. Like, yeah, I mean, it's three ingredients. Yeah, give me blueberries and carrots. Let's go. I bet Grant Atkins would eat both of those. Yeah. Absolutely. He I loves bet Van Quam would. <laughs> God, there's uh, pot belly sandwiches. Th- those Ooh. would show up, like, once every three, four months as just, like, a staff meal treat. There's a pile it, of pop you know, just like it was always great to see that like everybody there just loved trash food like the rest yeah. of us. Yeah. Um, but this is this is one that I've been like sitting on, and I don't know why I don't just pull the trigger. But do you do you know Tom Sachs, the artist? No. S A C H S. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's culturally kind of sits in this like all of his art projects are reusing materials. Um, a lot of them are. You know, NASA related. He does a lot of work with NASA. He releases Nikes periodically. That's um, how I know him. And his his big thing is, you know, like the workflow in the art space. Um, and so he released a, a thing called a, a, a video called 10 Bullets. And it was all about like how to work in a creative space. And it's mm. everything from how to move through the space. Like they taped it out and they were really specific. Like this is a workstation. You stay in this box. If you move outside of the box, you have to like abide by different protocols. Sure. Like don't let the cops in. Like that was another one of the 10 rules was just don't let the cops in. I'm with you on that. Um, brilliant stuff. And um, he's got like an actual physical copy of the zine. And they sell it for twenty bucks or something. It's just like somebody's photocopied thing. It's you know it's brilliant. And um, cool. but he also takes um, he'll take like uh, road construction signs and turn them into a lunar rover. That's that's life size. You know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've always we we did a lot of that work around Marvel. Uh, like the ten bullets was a big part of like our drumbeat for how to work in that space and how to like interact with each other and like talking about creativity and. Um, but also, you know, like just how to work and how to do work in a creative space, like always be knolling was the, the thing ABK. And it's to the point where, um, some of the cocktail, the, I think it's mover and shaker company, they've got all the like pins and things. And one of them is ABK, which is a reference to that. So I don't know how that moved through the bartending community, but it clearly did. And, you know, we always felt like Tom Sachs was our little secret, but the thing's been viewed 20 million times and. You know, certainly no secret that way, but also cool to think that like all of these people individually, you know, collectively, right, individually, but collectively yep. found this thing and like made it their own. So, um, yeah, that was that was a tab that was of note that I thought. That's great. Like, but I don't know why I don't just order the thing. Sometimes like, oh, go ahead. Nope, that's it. Oh, I was going to say, like, sometimes it's it's nice to have a few things. I have I have a huge tab in my browser on stuff to buy yeah. and some of the shit mm. is like i'm never gonna buy that but it's nice to look at it every now and then about. remind myself yeah. and then there's stuff where i'm like one by one i'm slowly gonna reward myself mm. like every time i need to get because i don't i don't really love having more stuff but every now and then if there's something that would mean a lot to me then yeah. i'll pull the trigger on it we'll sure. go for it so yeah, i'm with you on that here's a tab called dry age beef crack um, <laughs> from edwards fine age meats 
which is like it's hamburger blend, but it's twenty bucks a pound, and yeah. it's supposed to just be incredible. Sure. So someday, yeah, I'm gonna. Why not? When I need a little serotonin, I'll just <laughs> order that, watch it come, and then you know make five burgers and. and That'll Roll it up in some pastry dough with <laughs> yeah. a little cream cheese and some broccoli and some cheese. Yeah, and I want to, Peter, I want to thank you for tab 191, which is uh, Googling Tom Sachs. Yep. Yeah. So I'll look into that later. Yeah. That, he's, he's got a like three or four <laughs> minute video mm. called How to Sweep. And it's just a solitary person in a warehouse that's dirty with a couple brooms and like a, 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 a garbage can on wheels, basically. And it's just like, it's just about being mindful in that moment and like how anything mm. can be intentional. Um, even if you're just sweeping a giant ass warehouse, that shit's I, that actually yeah. hits harder than I thought it would. Yeah, yeah. That, that reminds me of the. Um, I don't know if you've seen this video, but there's this videographer who saw a street sweeper in France that has a rose on his street sweeper cart, and he just engages him and he says, "Why is there a rose on your cart?" And he says, "Well, I've had a rose on my cart for forty years. I just wanted to." Um, it's it's like accenting what he does to make it like to beautify it to show that like he's a person with interests and he wrote a book about it. I was like, whoa, that's fascinating. That's I, it makes me want to actually like read the synopsis of the book. But he wrote this book about him being a street sweeper that just has a rose on his cart because he and he says he loves his vocation and he cares about it and he's very you know he he cares about the all the details and he thinks it's important to society and that he values what he does and. He hopes that people value value his work as well, but that's you know similarly like it, I think it's more common in foreign countries for people to like select a vocation that might not be the most glamorous thing and to identify with it and to believe in it. And uh, there's something uh, really beautiful about that. Growing up in in Minnesota during the East Coast West Coast rap wars that I thought were very very real, <laughs> Super that real. were real for in a high few people. Hallways. But yeah, like you had to pick which side, and you had to pick who your rappers were, and all that. What to yell in a high school hallway? Yeah, and I really like I to this <laughs> day I still very much love both Tupac and Notorious B.I.G., two of the biggest figures of that era, and. I think that to this day, I still think that Biggie was a better lyricist, but where Tupac hit me was when I finally uh, found a, a book of compilation of his poems. And the book is named after for the most powerful poem in the book to me, which is called the Rose that grew from concrete. And it's yeah. a poem about how if you walk by a rose bush, it's just a rose bush. You don't necessarily remark on any of the flowers individually. You just think, Oh, that's a nice rose bush. But if you were walking down the street, in New York or LA or anywhere, and you saw a rose growing directly out of the concrete by itself, you would stop and marvel at look at that rose and look, look where it's grown and look what it's done. And he said, I want you to see me like that. And that always sat with me that, uh, that sometimes it is just looking at the circumstances and everything else. And sometimes it is somebody pushing through and like all of that wraps together in just one thing, being different all of a sudden makes you notice it and make somebody write a book about it because yep. you're not supposed to see that there. And then you question like, well, why is there a rose there? Well, why, why isn't there a rose there? Like, that's just a, a beautiful thing. And I love that. Absolutely. And Cheers. I love this. That's just a beautiful ring. What a lovely sound. These are lovely glasses. Hey, those are nice glasses. Quam, is that you? It is. So, Peter, uh, all three of us have been really, really fortunate to travel to some wonderful cities and to eat at some wonderful restaurants. Um, 
I kind of, or, you know, and drink at bars too, like drink at some really, really amazing legendary bars. I want to know, is there anywhere that's really swept you off your feet, be it restaurant, bar, roadside food stand, off the beaten path, somewhere that you weren't expecting to find absolute gold, and then you struck something that like kind of still sits with you to this day? I mean, that's, that's like my whole the last 30 years is looking for those places. You know, anytime you get a chance to live somewhere or travel slowly through some place, you get to find those places, you know, like kind of like to the point about a, a rose growing out of the, the, the concrete, you know, I always have a great experience at uncle Frankie's, right? <laughs> yeah, like, I'm so with you. On that. I have a great experience there. I think they have amazing tots. The burgers are fun. Like the, I mean, the, the hot dogs are fun. Like I, I never leave ha- unhappy like the service is consistent and like they're great communicators. There's some snark to it, but like that's part of the game. I love it. And so, you know, take that and find it everywhere you live. You know, like I lived in Austria for a while and there was a kebab, uh, like a, uh, a place that did Turkish food and like a little road stand. And man, I mean like I ate there three days a week and they got to know me. I got to know them. It wasn't amazing, but like the whole experience was wonderful. Um, you know, I lived in Chicago and Chicago is pretty isolating moving to Chicago in December. Like it's kind of like in Minnesota, but you know, in Minnesota you have cars and you kind of move around in Chicago, you're kind of on your own and you kind of have to find fend for yourself. People just get kind of cranky and hunker down and don't like move outside of their friend group. So, um, you know, I found restaurants and there was this place five blocks from me and they had this, uh, this taco that was sauced entirely with like blended habaneros Mm. and so it was the best six seconds of any food i Mm -hmm. ate in chicago and then it was so overwhelmingly hot that you just immediately had to start drinking this like warm banana drink that they had and you know like Mm. maybe it was that great but like there was just something about that place it was twin brothers and they would sit back there and they'd chop like a whole case of cilantro while you'd be sitting there just like perfuming robots yeah and the the space was just aromatic and the tacos were just like mind blowing and you felt like you hurt the next morning. Do you remember the name? No, no idea. I don't think it's there anymore. I think Uh, it's like a chain has moved through and taken over that little taco place. Of course. Um, But you know, like I'd sometimes leave there and there'd be a person selling elotes on the, you know, out of a cooler on the side of the road and I'd get that and then just, you know, help cool the the burn down even more. But, you know, it's like anytime as I've traveled, you know, if you travel slowly, you kind of get the chance to have a few bad meals at the at the <laughs> to the benefit of like that one meal that you just don't expect yeah you know and like you can just happen upon a a, a porchetta stand in italy and you're just like <laughs> in like some small town done. nothing there you've had three meals of sad ass pizza and then there's suddenly like the most incredible porchetta sandwich and it's oh, not a restaurant man. it's not a place you can call it's just this like little flash in the pan and then you're you're through to the next place and all you can do is just like write papers about it in college a couple of years later um <laughs> yeah. and that, that's that's how i knew i was destined to be in the restaurant industry was like all of my papers were on food so <laughs> it was just no calling to you through yeah. you yeah. yeah that's so great uh charles what about you yeah it, it, similarly it wasn't and there's so many ways you can go with a topic like this, but for me, similarly, it's a place where it wasn't necessarily like the high quality of the food. It was more being um, just impressed with the fact that the food was there. So in Lebanon, in the mountains, there is a um, monastery where the saint I was named after 
what? is buried. Um, my name in Arabic is Sharbal. Uh, my parents thankfully gave me the English version, which is Charles, because I do love my name. And uh, I was named for him because I, when I was born, I had some serious health troubles, and they didn't think I was going to make it. Uh, anyways, I visited there when I was very young. First time I went to Lebanon. When I was 13, I visited this monastery in the mountains. And um, in recent years, we have revisited, um, because my family's religious, I'm not religious, but I'm open to the experience. It's an absolutely beautiful and serene monastery with, like, it's just scenic. There's statues everywhere, and birds flocking, and cedar trees, and flower bushes. It's, it's a beautiful place to travel to. Uh, but what I discovered the last time I was there, about, that's probably like seven years ago, was they just have this bakery that's run by the monastery, and it's just Lebanese baked goods. So it's meish and, and mishtah and, like, all the things that you would find in a Lebanese bakery anywhere yeah. or a Lebanese restaurant, even in Twin Cities or in New York. And uh, I remember just it was this beautiful sunny day with a cool breeze coming off the mountain, and I was sitting there with uh, a few family members and ordered, like, this cheesy flatbread thing with a runny egg in the middle and just thinking like I could probably get this much further down the mountain or even like right near the condo but the entire experience of being there and feeling like you're isolated in this place that isn't necessarily even known for the restaurant it's just they have food because you're kind of stuck there for a little while yeah they're like are you thirsty or hungry because we have water and we have food and just being really enamored with uh, that as a secret little detail of that little monastery which in and of itself is like a tiny village on the mountainside come on yeah. i want to go there now and it sounds a lot like camping food like if you go with some if you travel <laughs> with somebody who knows how to cook over a fire yeah like you know a little bit of bacon and some flour and the fish you caught that day a lemon some garlic like things you yes. don't necessarily attribute to like easy stuff to camp with like suddenly can just blow your mind because right. you're in the spot and it's like you're, you're always, you can always then chase that and you're always going to be disappointed until you like hit that next stride when you least expect it in the middle of nowhere. Absolutely. That reminds me of um, my, my dearly departed friend, Mike. We used to camp on an island in the middle of a lake in Nevis, Minnesota, and we'd bring like the fixins, but if we didn't catch fish, we weren't eating because all the other stuff we had was pointless. The having cornflakes and, and um, butter and, and eggs and things to make like uh, shore lunch. It's not really satisfying unless you have the fish, but I adore those experiences where you go out in the lake, you catch enough bass to bring back butcher cooking a pan over the fire, hearing wolves howl around you. Like that's yeah. And that's an experience. Like you have to earn that. It doesn't happen unless you make it happen. I want to, that's why I wanted to ask this question. Cause I love this stuff. <clears throat> Two of the places that I wanted to bring up, I, I cannot think of the name of it. So I was well, trying you to. You daily doubled me on that. Oh, yeah. Well, fucking, <laughs> let's hit it anyway. <laughs> I love how loud that is. It's just insane. And you also just said you're doing two. So we double, well, we, we double daily double. No, I, I can't because I, I don't know the <laughs> names of them. So it's, I, I'm okay. not going to bring it up. Right. I, I spent a lot of what you were just saying trying to Google. I figured it out. I finally found one of the places. Oh, okay. I've yeah. talked about it on this show before and I could not come up with it. And I spent like two hours one night Googling every possible term because I found it on a road trip with my wife 
And I was like, I couldn't remember exactly what town we were in. And I couldn't remember like a lot of things. And I finally found it. And then of course I saved it. And then I couldn't remember where I saved it, but just found it. <clears throat> there is a town that is, excuse me one second. <clears throat> There's a town that is uh, about an hour's drive outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. And, uh, there are places I've talked about a lot in the show where I just follow my nose because I want to see what's going on. And there's a, a place there that I've talked about before that their menu is hot dogs, hamburgers, and cheer wine. That's it. Yeah, okay. sounds great. So they have now regular cheer wine in bottles, which for those of you that don't know is like, uh, imagine a Dr. Pepper but more cherry in it is sort of where Cheerwine ends up. It's a very, very popular retro soda in the South. Um, so they have regular Cheerwine, or you can get a slushy. that's just Cheerwine. Mm. that just stays at that perfect slushy form. And then they make their own super secret chili, and they make it every morning. And it's somewhere between like a sloppy joe, a loose meat sandwich, and actual chili. Like it floats somewhere in that. Kind of Cincinnati chili-ish. Yeah, well, yeah, but without the pasta and the ketchup and all that. Like it's actually, it's a Cuban-forward chili, but it's not Mm. spicy. But uh, chili dog with cheese there and a cheer wine slushy. There's no tables. I brought up a picture. I can't, maybe we can show it off, but it's literally that, the whole place is that size. It's approximately three human beings wide. It's just a counter. counter. There's a little counter if you really want to eat. Little standing space. Yeah, but the line goes down the block. So you don't want to be stuck in there because it'll get claustrophobic. So outside, there's no tables. It's just a city sidewalk. So It looks very old world, too. That must be like an institution. Oh, yeah. This is like 67 years old. And all of that... All of that flavor, all of that patina isn't just in the flat top. Yeah, it's Haps Grill. Haps Grill. Haps okay. Grill in Salisbury, North Carolina. Yeah, if you want to pull it up on your phone. That, H-A-P yeah, that apostrophe S. H-A-P apostrophe okay. S. Um, it smells like you already know your, what it's going to taste like. Yeah. And it was so glorious. <laughs> we sat elbows down on an old school blue mailbox and crushed and it was one of the most glorious hot dogs i've ever had there's something to be said for like the atomized grease of places like that absolutely where right when you walk in you're already eating it yeah it's, it's already with it's like it's an your, air brine baby yeah. like <laughs> you're taking in a little bit of the brine while you're in there you're hopping in the stock and swimming around your olfactory is already eating it absolutely you know? family-owned <laughs> joint like it's literally like uh like husband wife kids uncles cousins mm-hmm. all working and they, it's a super secret recipe for the chili. That's They don't have any other places. It's just that. But that pairing of this glorious chili dog and that cheer wine slushy is something that I still dream of. Like, even seeing it right now, my mouth is getting a little juicy. Like, I'm, I'm getting drooly just thinking about it because it was this glorious, like, MSG umami moment. And all of the sweetness from the cheer wine is brightened up by everything going on, like all of the different forms of sodium in the hot dog and the chili. Yeah. Uh, and then vice versa, that cuts right through all of that. And, you know, it was like a beautiful 81 degree day. And we're just sitting outside in the shade of a tree with our elbows on a mailbox. And I was like, this is it. Like we, we've had two really beautiful dinners at nice restaurants. That's great. But this is the jam right here. And just, you know, listening to that cross-section of folks that are on their lunch break and just trying to run in and eat something to, like, the guy that very clearly eats there every single day 
and has this order. Like, there's the secret code words for, like, how people like where they put the onions. The preparations and, yeah. and stuff. Like, and yeah. they all have different names for it. That's always true. That kind of brings up more questions. Like, how, how is the bun, right? Is it, like, a standard bun? Is it a top slice? It was Do they griddle the inside, Standard the bun, straight up white bun. Like, pre-cut. Nope. Wow. They're putting, and it all just soaks in there. By yeah, the end yeah. of it, it's almost like your your fingers are what's holding everything on there. Yep. You can't get out of there without a stack of napkins. Like, their napkin budget must be through the roof. But it was absolutely wonderful. And I remember going to a very highly recommended restaurant that night, and at least twice during that dinner, I just kept thinking about, man, that was a good fucking yeah. hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> and no shade towards the restaurant we went to at all. I had a very, very beautiful piece of halibut, and it was great. It was a whole different vibe. But, man, I still think about that place. And the fact that I literally, now six years removed from that trip, that I spent two hours one night trying to find this fucking place, and that I finally found it, I will go back. Yeah. I love places like that where you, you're on a trip, and it's just like, food that sits in your gut makes you feel good and you have to go back more than once one of the places for me it's that i i have to do that is if i'm in denver i have to go to illegal pizza multiple times well, i can't get mad at you for it's that it's my favorite burrito anywhere on planet earth i have to get it more than once and most times what happens is i get one for lunch and i can't stop thinking about it and i have a nice dinner somewhere and then go to the bar and then late at night i go back to illegal pizza for another burrito dude i'm with you man yeah. That's Jean Famous in New York for yeah. me. I haven't, I've, it's been, I think, 11 straight trips to New York that I've had to go there and get the same thing I get every time. Hey. See? Oh, it's, I, oh, it's coming. You get it again soon. You're damn right. <laughs> that's a little, that's a little spoiler. Hint, there. hint. We'll, t- we'll tell you more about that someday soon. Genie sprinkles. Oh, got genie sprinkles. Yeah. But I mean, what does it say about food that, like, we either talked about a place where like the food was simple, but mm. it was the place that made it, or it was like some sort of secret sauce that mm-hmm. happened. Like mm-hmm. we're not talking about you know big fine dining experiences that that's the thing that like is is cemented in our brain. But like it's it's this like there's there's a certain like human touch to it, or like a yeah humility, a, a, a genuine connection to a place sure, or so. to people or right. you know what have you that like that's where it really shines. So I've had like. I've had my feet lifted off the ground at a lot of Michelin star restaurants, but those are the places that make your feet stick firmly to the earth. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. that's the, that's what makes you feel grounded. That's what makes you feel human. And, and just like pure satisfaction in the simplest form. And it doesn't take three hours. It takes three minutes. And you're just like, that was fucking great. I was really uh, fortunate like a month and a half ago to, to sit down at a, a dinner with a Nigerian chef uh, named Uche. And he was talking about, um, he made three different stews and served it with fufu, which is a sort of like a soft dough. And then you break a piece off and you stretch it with your fingers and then you use that as a spoon. And he was talking about how um, there are now multiple studies that have proven that there's a greater connection to the food. If you're putting it in your mouth with your hand um, where whether it's something primal or something where your body is already accepting that this is safe, that there's a closer connection to that. And I do, after he told me that I have thought a lot, about the things that have moved me the most. And a lot of them involve eating something with my hands. One of our guests brought that up too. And that was the first time this story came up. I forget who it was, but they said that like the tactile experience of placing the food animalistically, putting the food directly into your lips, as opposed to using a utensil, it has like a different, this uh, subversive connotation in the human brain that the utensil sort of eliminates. Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, that's, you just talked about hot dogs, Ben. Charles, you just talked about like, 
eating bread in the mountains mm-hmm. and I just talked about taco, you know, yep. like hot dogs, yeah. tacos, that, like it's it, all, that, it's all food with our hands. That was what like, yeah. it was just like, wait a minute. Yeah. We, we did all We're just all talk there. about that. Yeah. And also there, it, there's a complementary nature to each of the things that we discussed because when you said tacos in Chicago, I thought of a place that I love to have mm-hmm. tacos in Chicago where nobody speaks English and there's napkins all over the floor and they actually use lamb in their barbacoa. And then you bringing up, you know, like a, a chili dog made me think of Mike once again. Absolutely. Being, being with him in Pittsburgh and him taking me to like every one of his favorite hot dog places. Mm-hmm. Not one. At the time I was like, another hot dog place, huh, Mike? But they're all like these old Coney style, like ancient. Yep. Weird old tile that you could tell has been there for a hundred years. So, and I'm sure you both have had experiences at those types of like bakeries, just like a wood fired oven with like flatbreads or pitas or anything like that. Isn't that great that we can all sort of connote and listeners probably are also connoting those things. The same as a super boring topic of the tabs, but the reason it's not that boring is because every person listening was like, let me check. Uh, I I had to do that. I was ready to be like, I have like two. That's all I ever do. Because normally I'm pretty good about that, but apparently I've been slipping. Okay. Okay. Well, cheers. Yeah, cheers. Ooh, are we moving on? We're going to crack into the next one. Let's go. Yes. Tell us about it. So the formula kind of remains the same, that there's a backbone of Verjou, unripened wine grape juice that gives you kind of that, like, profile of the, the acid profile of grapes. Um, there's a little bit of vinegar in there because the vinegar, you know, deepens the acidity. Um, you know, I think you mentioned earlier that there was a, that alcohol is really good at a lot of things. Um, yes. From a flavor standpoint, there's no truer words. Um, you know, you have to employ all the other tools to be able to get to be able to get flavor to stand up to food and to like make you crave more and to like do all the things that a glass of wine does. You have to like kind of get unconventional, and so sure. um, salinity helps, tannins help, low acid helps, carbonation helps, and then all together you kind of have this. Um, and so our like kind of as we built these kind of around the progression of a meal, right? You start with something light, um, something fun, something like your cocktail hour, um, and then you move into like your bitter salad, your your roast chicken, um, that kind of stuff. And then and this is this is the drink that hits that. And this is Salinger, mm. um, a single botanical, linden flower, which is about to bloom in the state of Minnesota. Um, oh, that's probably right. already is in southern Minnesota. Verjou, um, a little bit of cider vinegar, um, and then a little bit of clarified pear juice. The oh, tea, wow. the tea elements of this always right. get me. Yep, it has, it has that really beautiful and like to once again refer to my Lebaneseness. Lebanese people make teas out of like a lot of flowers and mm-hmm. herbs and weeds and stuff. This reminds me a lot of uh, dandelion tea that my mom would make when we were kids, especially if we were sick. You got to drink some dandelion tea. That I was, was the cure. I was actually going to say the same thing. Really? Uh, yeah. At, at uh, one of the myriad camps I went to as a child, that was one of the things that they taught us was like, isn't it cool? Because they were trying to yeah. like, show us that foraging is fun, sure. but don't go too far because you're going to kill yourself with berries or mushrooms because yes. we're just kids. But that was one of the things was making dandelion tea. And there's that florality in that background note. It absolutely was reminiscent of that. Mm-hmm. And then kind of brings me back around. I love, I love bright acidic things mm-hmm. and then that just snaps me back home with that and i, I gotta get some of this for my mom 
Because yeah. I, yeah. I assure you my mom would absolutely adore this. Well, you know a guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, there's this thing, though, that, like, when you're, when you're trying to get into wine, right, you're, like, looking at this product that's agricultural by nature, um, and at its best, a bottle of wine is a story of a family's journey on a plot of land over a calendar year. Right, like there's there's stuff that happened and transpired underground over millennia, um, but like really that's that's the story that that bottle is telling you is what what happened to that family was it dry was it wet you know what what did they do to the wine after it but it's mm. in at its purest it's just like one ingredient you know it's just grapes and right. so fermentation's the thing that really like does that and the winemaker's hand the the interaction with the soil and it's an agricultural product and if you if you go a different route you know like we didn't want any alcohol. We didn't want alcohol removed. We didn't want to run the risk of there being trace amounts in it. So like most fermentation has some trace amounts of alcohol that show up um, in the beverage and world. And we just, yes. we wanted to totally. Some s- people avoid that too. So that's also, yeah. that's a very important point. We wanted to avoid it, but also like kind of the, that earlier point of, you know, creativity coming from restraint. Yeah. Right? constraint like that we just kept on putting boxes around us to be like make it a smaller and smaller pool of things to draw from my partner was pregnant and like the number of things you can't have when you're pregnant that list is Mm. very long especially when you start talking beverages like anything bitter is bitter because it's a poison you know like you you can't you can't inject um gentian root in there without like just having a little bit of you know little voice in the back of your head like i can't serve this to a pregnant woman you know like you can't have bitters. You can, but like, where's that line? You know, it's it's such a a, a thing you just don't want to screw up. It's your kid. And why put um, that onus on on the person who's imbibing? Yeah. Like, why not take that like responsibility yourself equation, yeah. and remove it from the equation so yeah. somebody doesn't have to worry? And like, it couldn't. We couldn't have been developing these flavors at a better time than being at home than me being at home with a pregnant woman. Like, it just it forced it to just be as clean as possible. So you know, but then but then you lose. You lose the ability to get complexity through fermentation and you lose the ability to get complexity through like adding a lot of things in there because my tool belt is a lot of things. Um, you know, my bartending style was often, you know, the flavors that I would steer towards were more minimalist, like trying to let the ingredients shine for themselves. Um, but like it was hard to do that when you're trying to make something that's more of like an Amaro train of thought. Right. Mm. Like you're, you're looking at 20 or 30 ingredients in there. And that's where most of these recipes started with was pretty complex because that's how I was thinking like, wow, that's how you can build complexity. But we just kind of spun it completely and decided that the, the realization happened that you can add complexity to something if it's just not familiar. Right. Like imagine tasting chocolate today for the first time. Yeah. Like how mind blowing that would be. The, the things that you would pull out of there. Like if it was a true single source chocolate, yeah. and like, you know, tasting it side by side with another single source chocolate, like it's just mind blowing. And you can get there still as somebody who's been eating chocolate for most of your lives, mm-hmm. as I'm sure most of us have. Um, but like we use chocolate to describe wine, right? But like chocolate mm-hmm. in and of itself is just an expansive field. Um, and that same thing happens. Like we're trying to introduce flavors in the botanicals that we use that are like that you're searching for the familiar in, Mm -hmm. right? Like you found dandelion in there, but a lot of people pick up like unsteeped tea or other things, you know, and with the pippy, like you're, you're looking at white pine needles. A lot of people didn't grow up, you know, drinking white pine tea as, as was common in the people here before, before we took over. Um, Like, you know, my, my recollections with white pine are like, 
you know, rubbing up against it as it dripped off the trees in my front yard, you know, and like it would get stuck on my clothes and yeah. it would just be like, kind of just be persistent that way. Um, and so, you know, like that, that's the, that's the way that we settled on to find complexity is like something that's just a little bit outside of your comfort zone. Some people may have a background with white pine tea and they won't be offended by it, mm -hmm. but for everybody who hasn't like to be able to perceive something in a new light, um, presented in a way that's not familiar, you know, like you may, you'll, you'll notice Linden in the next couple of weeks in your neighborhood and it'll suddenly like, tri like it'll just click. Um, <laughs> like that's that thing I was drinking that other night. Yeah. Um, love that. And so, yeah, that's all of our flavors are just a single botanical rather than a bunch. That's beautiful. Um, well, I'm going to have one more sip and then I'm going to ask you another question. Please. Yeah. Cheers. So I figured this would be a, a, a softball for you as a, a father of a young child. Um, it's been pretty beautiful and, and, and warm and sunny uh, around for the last couple of weeks. And I love when this time of the year hits because I watch my pets find all the different sunbeams coming in throughout the house and take naps until the sunbeam moves. And then they wake up and they move to the next sunbeam and they lay down again, they go for it. And it can be like coming in the door frame. It can be in the living room. It can be wherever they find it. And I have never been good at naps. I've been, been struggling with trying to nap since I was a kindergartner, but I'm starting to get better at it. The fear of falling asleep and being asleep for seven hours isn't as prevalent in my world anymore. And I have noticed the joy of like a 45 minute nap. But I was going to ask you, is there, do you have a sunbeam in your life? Is there something that can relax you if you need to like grab some sleep really quick? Is it just the sheer exhaustion of being a, a parent? Um, and then what's your relationship with naps now versus where it was pre-parenting? I think before, especially in the early days of the pandemic, you know, like everybody had their own experiences. But for me, it was really relaxing because like I couldn't leave the house. I couldn't like do anything. I was used to working long weeks where I was always on the go. And so like I got some good naps in the early stages of the pandemic um, and I'm not a napper. Like, I like them, but I never find myself there because I'm always like, oh, yeah, I got something. You know, yeah. I got 20 minutes. I'm going to go do this thing. My brain's always working a um, million miles an hour. But about 2017 or so, like, I stopped drinking in 2016. Um, 2017, I, or 2018, I stopped drinking caffeine. Um, and that was a real mm -hmm. game changer um, because I, I'm just always, like, energized anyway. Like, I don't need that extra thing to, like, increase my anxiety and, and keep me going. Like, I just wake up in the morning and I'm ready to go. Um, and so since having a child, my relationship with naps has become, like, very selfishly, I take contact naps. Like, my daughter sleeps on, in my arms, mm -hmm. and it's just, like, that's the most relaxing thing. Like, sure. you know, that's, that's more gluttonous to me than being able to sleep because it's just comforting. It's quiet. We're, there's nothing I can do. I can't leave. I, I can try and transfer her, but like if she's sick, she's having a bad day, like that's, that's it. And, you know, it's certainly a thing that is a luxury for somebody who works a standard nine to five that you don't get to do that all the time. Right. Like sure. as a business owner, like I, I get to have a pretty flexible schedule so I can work until one o'clock and then run upstairs and find a quiet corner and we take our nap and then, you know, I can work again after she's asleep at eight or nine then work for a couple hours so um my relationships with naps are very selfish and like and really awesome at the same time the best way possible yeah yeah in your like college years at all anything like that or just no, no. yeah all right i'm very no. similar to you on that but 
Charles, I know that you have a slightly adversarial relationship with sleep, so I was curious to to see where you landed on that. Yeah, I don't nap. Uh, I don't. I don't like them, and I don't do them. I probably nap once or twice a year. You know, my alliance say I never nap. You know, once in a while, you're just like super low energy, and you're laying in the dark, and you, your eyes closed, and you're napping. But that's probably a one or two time a year thing. I guess maybe the way to look at this is, for me, a version of a nap is falling asleep earlier. Mm. It's kind of like a yeah. nap that turns into a night of rest. And, you know, if you're going to say, what is your sunbeam? Um, I didn't know you were going to phrase it that way, but I really I really appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, for me, it also is would be uh, the touch of another tiny living being. It's my cat, man, because my cat is my shadow. He's my familiar uh, my little buddy boy, Lucky, he's 11 and a half years old. That is like, you know, I don't subsist to the the notions that you have a best friend, but just the, this living being that has been attached to my body more than any other living being over the last 11 years. Like he and I have this kindred ship that you really can't get from, you know, any other living being. And with him, he knows at night, like when we're slowing down, when things are calming down and slowing down and, um, often I'll get horizontal on the couch and put some like mindless television on or someone playing something on Twitch. And the second he sees me go flat, he's like, all right, it's cuddle time. <laughs> and now his thing, cause over the years it's changed, but now his thing is I lay on my side. I'll be looking at the TV, just kind of winding down ready to get myself prepared to, to get into sleep mode. And he climbs up onto my shoulder on my side and sleeps on my shoulder. Oh, like he sure. uses my shoulder as his bed. So that's kind of the way that we cuddle. And then when we end up transitioning to the bedroom, cause it's time to actually go to sleep. If I'm on my side, he goes in the crook of my legs and curls up. And if I do like belly side with the figure four, he goes, I think the reason I started doing it is for my cat, but I do like a figure four with my legs and the little middle is a cat bed. Yeah, oh, I can gets, see that. He gets right in there. But that is the closest approximation for me for something that you could consider napping. But I think it would be more appropriate to say that it qualifies as like my sunbeam. It's it's my cat curling up with me to sleep. I get it, man. Do you I'm go to sleep at the same time every day or does that vary quite a bit? Like, uh, No, I go to sleep when I am tired. Yeah. Um, I wake up. I'm a, a Nighthawk early bird, I always say. I, I go to bed late, but it varies how late. And I always get up early. I get a great mental clock. Um, I just pop up in the morning. Um, and I like to wake naturally. We, we talk about sleep a lot on the show. But yeah, it's, it's a different, it, it depends on like how tiring of a day I had. And fortunately, I can sleep when I want to. I just don't want to. But sometimes you're like, you know what? I'm going to get some extra sleep tonight. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Oh. <laughs> I, I'm learning, right? I, I, I have never been a nap person. I've always been the person that's go, 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 go. So I'm trying to be better about that because... I do enjoy, like, the idea behind it. it it's, I, I've always been a little bit jealous of my nappy friends. <laughs> like, I'm like, man, that sounds great. And it occurred to me when I was watching my dog, like, move slowly with the sunbeam as it was, like, <laughs> going through the afternoon, that I think that, I think that Sunday football is my sunbeam. Like, I usually watch it in the basement because my wife doesn't give a shit about football. Mm. And our basement is notoriously cold. And so it's like you're on a leather couch in a cold room. And then it's such a familiar sound. Yeah. Like, there is every now and then there's, a, like, a new announcer that comes in that's like, oh, that's that's different. But for the most part, it's like the same eight 
dudes just saying the same dumb shit over and over and over again. Keywords dumb saying dumb shit. Yeah, yeah and it just like <laughs> it 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 lulls me into that. Like the way that some people are with like watching golf on TV, that's how I am with like Sunday football because it goes all day. And it's the same, it doesn't matter which voices are saying what, it's the same dumb stuff with the same bullshit storylines, but it's, it's like very soothing to me. And the I enjoy that. The crowd. <laughs> yeah. So yes. Just the, the hum like, oh. <clears throat> exactly. And just keep <laughs> the volume low so that when it kicks to commercial and it's like 35% louder, it doesn't, it's not jarring, but that absolutely does it for me. Uh, or I've been using it more as like a way to fall asleep earlier, but I've I've noticed now that on the weekends, if I do take a little nap, it's because I lay down and my cat Harold climbs up on my yeah. upper left shoulder and falls asleep. And he like he doesn't he was an orphan kitty, and I just don't think he ever learned how to like purr and meow. He didn't learn how to do anything right. He so just he purrs has, at your con- your video game controller. Yeah, but he doesn't even really purr. It's just this <laughs> weird like. <laughs> like he's just a poor little guy yeah. he just he just can't he's like the poor kid who has a weird laugh that's harold only it's just like his purring uh but it's rhythmic and that's very very soothing and so it's when i watch like a full season of like a cooking documentary because they're built to have very soothing like commentary behind it there's no commercials because you're streaming yeah. it that will put me out like it's soft food porn i don't have to be invested in it <laughs> and then with that like the, the combo together it really really gets me uh i i love that so it's weird that like i have a lighted surface that's one of the bigger things in my room that also kicks out noise that's mm-hmm. part of my nap routine but it's like it's a noise i understand and i can block out and that allows me to maybe not think about as many things like the weird thing I said to a girl in ninth grade that I still haven't (laughs) recovered from. Like it's enough to have me focusing on that. So whatever sludgy part of my brain that wants to bring that up doesn't get a chance. And that's like, it's a very happy, yeah, it's quiet time. Mm -hmm. I like to think that naps kind of evolve naturally as we age too, that like there's a necessity that at the early stages of our lives and as at the later stages in our lives that, that we just need more sleep and naps are just a great way to, be able to go out there and do a lot for three, four hours and then eat something, take a nap, yeah. wake up, get back at it again. It's common in foreign cultures. In mm-hmm. Lebanon, they take a siesta. They work really early in the morning. They go have lunch. They go home and nap, and then they go back to work. Mm-hmm. Like Not every job, but it, you know, a lot of my family are farmers, and that's what they do. They get up at 5 a.m., and they farm until noon, and they go eat a lunch, have a couple drinks, and they go to sleep for two, three hours, and then they go back to work until the sun goes down. It's really interesting. Mm. Um, it, one of life's cruel tricks is that, you know when I, re- the only time I really want to nap? On a motherfucking airplane. <laughs> the hum of an airplane makes me want to sleep, and I can't sleep on planes. Yeah. So that's like a very, very cruel trick, is that that's the place where I'm like, I could totally just sleep and wake up in my destination, but I cannot, I can't actually fall asleep. I just get really tired for the entire duration of the flight just sleeplessly and then wait to land and then wake back up. I'm the exact <laughs> same because I, I like I, I can get tired if I'm, if I'm like hearing that hum and then I read a book, mm. I could be out like that. But I also, my shoulders are almost at the height of a normal airplane seat. So there's really nowhere for my neck to go. And even if I put a pillow on, you're still just sort of like, if I go forward, like, yeah, I get daily neck. Yeah. And I, I just feel like I'm about to fall asleep and then I go and the old, the old like 787s and the old Airbuses, it was a straight enough wall that if I had a window seat, 
I could just put the pillow next to my head and I could do that. But now that they've shifted to make everything smaller and smush more seats in, I sit at the angle. So I actually can't have a window seat anymore on modern planes because the angle of the, the cabin goes up <laughs> so much that I end up, I'll literally have a crooked neck for the entire flight. And I can't, I can't do that. So mm. it's just pretty miserable. So I have to be active on the plane. I have to watch a movie. I have to yeah. do something. I have to play a video game. I have to like be a part of it until I land. Mm-hmm. It sucks. I wonder if part, part of napping culture is just because like it's too hot in the middle of the day to do anything else, right? Like you go back, you retire, and in the winter, like yeah, you might be right. I got six hours of light. Like I'm going to do everything I can in that six hours of light. Like mm. one o'clock, there's no nap. Like that's that's the only time I get light. I'm I'm with you on it. I like was in, in the summer. I'm more likely to want a nap than I am in the winter. I was in in uh, in Morocco in August, and from say noon to three, there's nothing going on. I mean, that is desert sun beating down on you and mm-hmm. everybody vacates. And then everybody comes back out and starts opening up for like coffee and tea. And then you go right into dinner and mm-hmm. then you go right into like going out and having fun and dancing. But yeah, it's, uh, that makes all the sense in the world to me, Peter. Right. Like that's, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm with you on that. Cheers. Shall we? Yeah. Again, this is great. Thank you. I love how that sounds like some sort of religious ceremony. Yes. You know? <laughs> Wine is like that. That yeah. is the thing. Like that's sure. you're sitting at a table, like communing with people. Mm-hmm. Like there's a reason that, <laughs> that Christians use, use wine as part of their, their service. And I'm, I'm sure other people do too. Mm-hmm. Um, like, yeah, there's something so special about sharing a bottle. And like when we were designing the product and the packaging, like we could have gone to cans, right? There's, Cans are cheaper. They ship nicely. They they can withstand a ton of pressure. You can bring them to pools. You can bring them to beaches. You can camp with them. They, you know, they have all these benefits. But the thing that they miss is the thing that's the most important for us, and that's that like social aspect. I agree. You know, like you just have to, be, you know, sitting at a table and watching this be poured by other people. Like you're you're suddenly like bridging cultures and bridging bridging gaps, and like everybody's getting. It's the family meal aspect of it. I think that the glass bottle also drives the context of the, the messaging you'd like to portray to prospective consumers or to people who already consume the product. The wine bottle and the descriptions of each of those products, I think, is more impactful in the bottle than it would be in the can because a can would make it feel more like a, a soda or something like that. This is this helps to extol the virtues of what this product is. Well, it's also like <laughs> we've all been around a campfire and like somebody who's a better musician than I like pulls out a guitar and just kind of starts quietly like playing something along. And you're like, oh, this is rad. Imagine if that same person just pulled out like a Bluetooth speaker and just hit play and then just started singing over their speaker music. Like it's still the same song and they could have played it perfectly, but it's just not it's not the same. You know, like you you want to be a part of that. I feel like that's the wine bottle is that like I'm going to reach across and I'm going to pour you some like that hospitality aspect is 100% a part of the ritual to me. And I mean, that's, we would be in more restaurants if we were selling things in cans. Mm-hmm. Like that's a, a, a fact sure. that, that many people have expressed to me. Um, and yet like, it doesn't matter. Like that's, if, if somebody's not, it, it, you're, you're taking a gamble on buying our product. We're premium, we're expensive. 
um, and arguably more expensive than many wines out there because of the loops, the, the hoops we have to jump through to get everything to Minnesota to be able to produce this. Um, but, you know, it just wouldn't be the same if you're sitting at a table and somebody brings you a can of something while everybody else is sharing a bottle around you. Like, sure. you're not looped in on that. Whereas, <laughs> you know, if you're sitting at a meal and everybody's drinking alcohol except for two or three people, and then halfway through the meal, like, everybody takes a pause from alcohol maybe not like known that that's what's happening but suddenly like the bottles are dropped and everybody's sharing the same thing like suddenly those three or four people at the table of 60 are just like looped right back in um and everybody's on the same page and can you know experience it for flavor and not just for the fact that like it's something that's going to cause you to need to take an uber home or something mm -hmm. you know like Fuck yeah that's that's a big part of what we we experienced in the evolution of marvel bar right where i was the I worked there from the time we opened until the, the day we closed. And, um, you know, I, I started as a bartender and moved into manager and then the general manager. Um, but, like, this has no correlation directly with my timeline. It's just, like, kind of how our collective thinking moved. But when we started off, it was, like, we were kind of like the, the nail, you know? Like, at the end of your night, you'd come into Marvel Bar to see your friends, and we would, like, just, just put a booze hammer down on you. Like, our, our old fashions were 100-proof whiskey, and we were yeah. serving you 80 mils of it. Like, we, we kept on having to dial that back just ever so slightly just because we wanted people to like us and to remember us. And, like, that wasn't hospitality if we were just constantly just, just beating dagger after dagger. Yeah. And so, you know, our collective menu moved towards more options that were low alcohol but still huge in flavor. And, you know, which culminated in, at, at, in the ninth year, we suddenly, like, we released a menu that was all non-alcoholic drinks yeah. and took all 400 bottles off the back bar. And, you know, you just, it was like there was a lightness in the room that wasn't there before. Like it was still full of laughter and conversation, but like people were in there and it, it wasn't that you would have people, like we still served alcohol, um, but like the number of people who were coming in and everybody at the table was drinking alcohol and then they'd all just like take a breath and everybody would have something without alcohol they'd have another round and then they'd have, you know, like their, their tabs were bigger than if they were just drinking alcohol because they had to drive. It was a Tuesday. Um, you know, any of these things that get in the way of alcohol allowing you to function, you know, that, I don't know, just, it, it felt that that was a really impactful moment to me because I was thinking of it from the lens of people who don't drink and, or who are ex experimenting with dry January, but really like collectively we're all realizing that there's, there's grace in just in just taking a pause. Absolutely. And, and slowing down. It's great to see societally, uh, particularly in the United States, that people are more ready for that because it used to be so binary. It used to be either zero consumption or dying on your shield. Um, it, it's great to see that people are more open to all the shades of gray amidst those the fully black and white um, ends of the spectrum. I remember that people weren't ready... Um, in my experience, when Marvel first opened with like some of the hyper dilution, like some of the more, and you were, you you guys were very vocal about the the cocktails that were like lower proof. They have a lot of dilution in them, and I remember experiencing like a lot of uh, from from guests who were there with me, and I probably wasn't fully ready for it either. Saying like, "Oh, why is it not like a real drink?" But now people are more ready for those experiences, and you're seeing those experiences uh, being made readily available to consumers and then also the fully non-alcoholic versions of drinks to the degree that people who are daily drinkers or, or are accustomed to, you know, when they go to the bar, they drink are more open to drinking products like dry wit saying like, I can 
still enjoy myself without consuming alcohol. It's fascinating. I had a friend who uh, who spent years working for uh, Button Poetry, who is one of the most brilliant houses of amazing and up and coming uh, poets in in our country. And I got really obsessed. He would like tip me off on people who hadn't published books yet, but had done um, like spoken word stuff and then would like send me videos. And I, of course, went down like rabbit hole after rabbit hole of, of checking these people out. And there was a poet, I still have it saved, uh, who had a line um, talking about finding beauty in quiet moments. And the last line of her poem was, I hope to look back on my life and see it as a glossary of pauses. And I've really tried to put that in my heart of like taking a moment and just seeing that it's never been about what's on the plate or what's in the glass. It's taking the moment in with everybody. And I think as I've reframed that in my head, that's opened me up to a lot more experiences in that where it's, it's the idea and the heart behind what the food is or what the liquid is, not what the effect it has on me. And as I get older, and maybe this goes hand in hand with my with my nap question, as I get older and older, I, I hope to find more pauses that I didn't realize I had room for. Um, and I think that's a beautiful place to exist. So for you to provide a product that also offers a reason to take a pause, I think that's pretty wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really powerful to be somebody who like, to, to connect what you're doing in your personal life with what you're doing in your professional life. Yeah. And as a bartender who doesn't drink, like there's a disconnect there where the things that got me out of bed were like focused on team development and marketing and other aspects of the business that weren't just like tasting alcohol and making drinks. And like there's the, the nuance of hospitality behind that was the thing that kept me going. So Absolutely. like to come back to beverage and to come back to like liquids in a way that was flavor focused and experience based, like suddenly I could, I gave a shit again and I could like just dive in with, you know, feet first and just you know, fuck the rest of it. Like, yeah. it w and, and, and the number of people who resonated with that was just mind boggling. You know, January is a really slow month and that January was a really, was a, a, a hopping time in Marvel. Um, and you know, what a hell of a way to go out. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, because we didn't even get to finish out the four months of, of that of that experience for you know due to COVID happening in mid March. Yeah. So. Crazy. All right, topic number four. Yeah. Uh, Peter, who's someone you truly admire that doesn't know it? Whether that be someone that might hear this or someone who might never. Oh gosh. I mean. Yeah, there's so many people in a journey that like that that leave marks on on your life, you know, that like that that give you the little push to the next step. But, you know, that really there's nobody who's like shown me grace and humility and like that then, you know, your parents brought you into this world, but like the person who brings who who brought my daughter into the world, Sam, like she just has she was pregnant for nine months and then like worked for, I mean, we were in the hospital for 36 hours while she was in labor and she pushed for five hours, like to go through that experience, like from the outside, I never could have ex imagined how crazy that was and how like she does, she probably doesn't remember 
most of that or the few days afterwards like you're evolutionarily designed to forget that so you might actually think that you want to procreate again you know um but yeah just just to think that like what started off as a whim of like well we could get married but that's kind of complicated we're in the middle of covid or we could have a kid which is strangely the easy route um and then we make that decision and then like 10 months later we've got a child mm-hmm. um that that's the most humbling thing i've ever seen you know because i can't do that i can't do anything close to that yeah. and just watching a mother's relationship you know everybody's got their own situations but like for us sam is still breastfeeding you know at almost two years in um and it's like it's this powerful tool to be able to like connect with your kid and to be able to like usher a kid through the world with that like comfort that's behind you like if you fall and you hurt yourself yes you can just like you can just drink a little milk like reconnect with me it's not about the nourishment as much as it is about like a stabilizing force to then like push you back out into the world you know it's it's given me an insight into like evolution and us as humans that like i never would have gotten without Mm -hmm. being a father and you know like on top of all the joy of having a kid around and being able to watch them grow and develop like watching a mother connect with her, her child is just like mind blowing. Um, and like te- the amazing aspects of humanity are such that like, it doesn't just have to be a mother, you know, there's any number of figures in a child's life through adoption or, um, you know, multi multi-parent households or, you know, a parent passing away or something, you know, it takes a village for sure. But like, just to be able to see that one aspect of it in my case, has just been really powerful. I don't want to go now. <laughs> go now. <laughs> no, like leave. Yeah, I'm out. All right. Well, it's been fun. Hey. You know, I, I, I was trying to think of like, I, we, we love giving flowers in this podcast, and I was trying to think of, of somebody who, I really like that idea of like maybe somebody who doesn't know it and also probably doesn't listen to this show because yeah, just p- putting it out into the world is like, all right, maybe I should figure out a way to say this to them. Um there's a guy that I meet up with a few times a year and have a cup of coffee and we go on a long walk together. Uh, his name is J Mac Kyle and I've known him since I was 19 years old. I met him because he was the drummer in a band that my first college band was opening for. And he was so nice to me. Like we were terrible. We were, it's not even like I'm trying to be like cool. Like, Oh yeah, we were so bad. We were fucking awful. (laughs) I have two live performances saved on VHS video. I can prove that we were terrible and he had no reason to come talk to me. Like they smashed sold out show. They rest of the people just hopped back in the, the van and getting ready to go to the next city. And he sat around and talked to me for a while. And I, just peppered him with questions because they had a real CD that they could sell. And I was so amazed that like, Oh my God, you could record a thing. So he ended up like we exchanged info and uh, the lead singer in our band. And he also struck up a a friendship. And when uh, John decided after the band took a hiatus, John recorded a solo album and J Matt was there to help him out and help him navigate it and help him find a studio and help to find a producer and he just kept letting me come to the studio. And while they were working on stuff and they were resetting rooms, I'm looking at all of the different CDs and asking questions. And then he introduced me to the producer and then the producer let me, like he would let me take CDs home from the record studio and like listen to them at home and then bring them back. Like he trusted me. And then 
he eventually he kept going and was in some really fucking cool bands. And then I got to go and like watch in a crowd of five thousand as they were just killing it. Mm. And then his last band, uh, due to we're well, just gonna call it internal turmoil, but a few of the people got in a fight and the band ended up breaking up. And I lose touch with him for a little bit. And I didn't realize that this entire time he had also been pushing himself in his career and he had gotten into marketing and he was working for a target corporation for a while. And then he broke out and he started his own like marketing agency and through social media, like we got our friendship back together in like the late two thousands and then have stayed in each other's worlds ever since. And he has this weird talent of knowing when I might need a text message to like motivate myself or just to reach out and say, Hey man, I really miss your energy. Can we just like get together and have a coffee? And now as like, as we've gotten older and we're much closer in, in age versus the years that we have, you know, um, I've got to watch him become a father three times over. And he has this amazing wife and these three great kids. And now we like still go to shows together and every holiday season, he's a part of this really cool, huge show um, called the, the new standards holiday show. And, you know, like he still puts me on a list and makes me feel like cool and I get to go and then I get to watch him on stage. And it's like, it's weird for the amount of changes that I've been through from 19 to 43 and the amount of different lives that I've lived. Um, our poor listeners have had to hear me talk about all the weird things that I've done. You guys have also seen a bunch of the weird things that I've done, but to have this guy who's just sort of like, he's been like the best cameo character on like the eight sitcoms that I've been in. He's just been that same character the entire time. And it really hit me the last time that we got together. Uh, we went for a, a, like a really long walk. And the last 45 minutes of it, we were just cheering each other on, talking about things that were going on in our lives. And I have that from a lot of my close friends. And it's not that I expect that, but like our relationships are built around that. We're invested fully in each other's lives. So of course we're going to, cheer each other on when things are good because we're also going to like lean on each other and cry when things are bad. But for this guy who has so much other shit going on, and I'm sure he has tons of other people that are much closer to him that he still lets me orbit around him like fucking Pluto, you know, in this weird elliptical pattern, but I'm never, no matter how far I am, I'm never out of his orbit. And I realize that there are a number of people in my life that are like that and how fucking lucky I am to have that. Cause like oh. it's, it's just extra credit, you know, like I could be having a good day or a bad day and I have ways and things to deal with. And I have people in my life I can go to, but to have somebody who just randomly pops up and is like, Hey, what's going on, man. And if it's good, he's like, dude, let's celebrate together. And if it's bad, it's like, well, what can I do about it? That is such an incredibly hard to quantify, uh, quality of, of a human being. And the fact that he's chosen to do it, since I was 19 for me, when I was basically like baby brother following him around, tugging on his, you know, his fucking belt loop to now where he treats me like a peer when I still, I think internally, I think I still feel like his like kid brother. It's just a really beautiful place to be. And I'm trying to be more prescient about acknowledging things like that and mm -hmm. saying it. And so Charles, I just want to thank you as somebody who I very much admire, but I hope I tell you on a regular basis I admire you for asking that question because it got me to think more about other people that I maybe haven't said that to. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why it's kind of a worthy exercise too, because often we say, we say this frequently and it's very true for me. And I know and at times it's true for Quam. When I 
10 a question. I don't know my answer. Oh. Um, and I think about it, and I don't often have an answer when I walk in, and I did not have an answer when I walked in here. Firstly, I want to tip my cap to someone who knows how much I admire her, but might not, she'll probably never know it to its complete notion. Uh, my wife just graduated another class at Edison High School in Minneapolis. Um, she's a phenomenal teacher. She's selfless. Her students love her. They're constantly giving her like little notes and art pieces where they write about how much they, they admire her and what a great teacher she is. So I wanted to tip my cap to her for that, but I'm going to be a little abstract about this. I appreciate that to this point, we haven't talked about the fact that this is our first episode in almost 90 episodes of the show where we're not drinking alcohol, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. And Peter famously said to me at Iron Bartender when we were judging together when we were talking about the podcast, well, it's not libations for everyone until you drink with someone who doesn't drink mm-hmm. alcohol. And so my abstract version of this, and I'm not going to call anybody out by name, but we have listeners of the show that are non-drinkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that are sober for one reason or another, health, wealth, um, the fitness of their life, uh, you know, decided it wasn't for them anymore. Just taking a pause. And I have a great admiration for um, all of those people. We know people in the service industry that are still actively bartending and running bar programs and stuff that don't consume alcohol. And I have a great deal of admiration for anybody who is able to identify anything in their lives. We're talking about alcohol now, but if you're able to identify, like, you know what, that's not for me anymore. And I'm going to stop. And some people need help. Some people do it of their own autonomy. But I think that this is a great time to to honor the people that we know and don't know that listen to the show, that appreciate our musings and the format that we utilize for almost every episode, which is consuming alcohol, um, and can still be, just like in real life, they can still be our friends. Mm-hmm. They can still be at Absolutely. the table with us. They can drink dry wit, and we can drink plift, or we can drink a glass of whiskey, or a martini, or a beer. And um, I just, I, I want those people that are listening to this that I do know to know that I don't, I don't look at you as less than, or that you're not bringing something to the party. I want you there, and I love and appreciate you, and that doesn't have anything to do with how much I love and appreciate you. And I want you to know that I admire you no matter what. Can I throw out two quick things? One. Okay. For all of our listeners out there, of course, my answer is my wife. I was just trying to, I knew you were going to, I was going to actually throw it in. I was going to say, now Quam's going to be like, I should say, well, like, but I, I think anybody that knows her, like I, I tell her to the point of her annoyance, like how much she means to me. And she knows terrible answer. Yeah, so I like, but again, I don't want anybody to be like, all right, these two guys both said their wives, and then Quam was oh, like, God. some dude that like no. played drums. And <laughs> that dance. usually happens to me, you <laughs> yeah. know, where I'm like, I didn't know we were talking about our wives. Like, it's almost always me. So you get a pass. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> but Peter, I also want to say that um, talking about this episode has doubled down on something that I've found um, since we, we released our bever- beverages with Plift, um, and that's that I had no idea how many of my friends had moved away from alcohol mm. because I don't ask everybody when we're out somewhere or we're at a party or at a dinner, I don't go like, what's in your glass? I, mm. it's, I'm just having a conversation and having fun. Right. And it, it really made me realize um, how many of my friends have shifted. And also, like you said, Charles, like kind of how strong they are to still be around that where 
you know, it's, it's not a problem for everybody, but it's just the fact that somebody made a choice and was like, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. And I like that. Whereas in my twenties, if anybody said they weren't consuming alcohol, the next five questions would be like, well, why not? And then, then peppered with a whole bunch of like toxic masculinity bullshit. And now it's just a really, it's a beautiful thing to be on the other side of it. And to be saying I'm working as hard to develop and sell things that are looking at all of you and all of my friends who consume alcohol. It, it, they're not mutually exclusive. Like all of these products, I, I like drinking alcohol. All of these products are things that I also love having. And like you said, Charles, it's just a, it's a beautiful reminder of how across spectrums we all are and that we should just give each other that grace. Yeah. And I, we like to occasionally point out that we don't want anyone to drink to excess just because we like to consume alcohol on the show when we do our six shots we're doing six one ounce shots we're big boys it doesn't really make a dent sometimes we have guests where clearly we're going a little harder but it is important to point out once in a while that it isn't about the show isn't about drinking to excess the the drink is a peripheral again to use the term peripheral it's a peripheral to the conversation it's not central to the conversation correct and like beverages for millennia have been used as a thing that like brings people together Mm -hmm. And, you know, as well as a meal, like, you know, what do you do before and after the meal? You drink stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not always been alcoholic, you know? I mean, think of, like, like coffee cultures in, like, yeah. northern Africa that are, like, just so cool and so ingrained. Yep. And, like, there's there's rituals around it. There's, I mean, we're, beverages are the thing that, like, really unites us in a way that, you know, food food unites us, but, like, we need to eat food. We can't not eat food. But, like we could get by with just drinking water, mm-hmm. right? Like water would be enough, but it's not enough because right. then we're missing the social piece. I um, referring to Morocco earlier, like it was 110 degrees and every store we went into, they were still hot tea. making us hot mint tea. And you could have told me that before I left. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to consume that. But the minute somebody offers you that they're offering you the hospitality of like, Hey, let's take a few seconds or a few minutes and let's talk. And I don't care that sometimes there was a hard sell involved for Nokis, not Nikes, but uh, there were also a lot of just really wonderful conversations with people. And it was that thing because, again, it causes us to slow down and it causes us to sit together and then we have something to kind of foment a conversation. And if you stop drinking alcohol, like there's a gap, right? Like you, you can go to a coffee shop, but the coffee shops close at three, mm-hmm. six. And so then what do you do at night? What, how do you like bond together at night? You know, you can have a bonfire, eat some s'mores. Sugar's a big thing that those of us who don't drink get down on really hard. <laughs> uh, and I mean, really hard. I, I love gummy candy. I bake a lot, like I, ice cream, like all of it. Um, but, you know, there's, it's, it's just not the same as beverages. You know, like it's just, this, this has like next to no calories. I mean, it, each bottle has less than 100 calories. Wow. Oh, that's, and so, that's I mean, amazing. Incredible. Which, which means in my, in my head, I think a lot of people would be like, well, it just means that I can drink a lot of it and I won't feel, you know, I, I won't feel bad about that. But like, for me, it just means there's more room for like foie yeah. or like cheese yeah, or the sure. heavy stuff that like yeah. you want that wine's so good with, like, how do you, how do you drink and like keep the digestive juices flowing from like salivating because of the tannins to the acid going in there and like helping you digest things like Yep. I'm able to eat more gluttonously because of this product. Like, as well, weird as that is, that's what wine does. Like, yeah. wine lets you just 
get gross with a meal. That literally, that leads us into the next question. So can I jump into that slash? Yeah. Do we have another yeah, bottle that we want to pop? Ooh, it's my favorite. This is my favorite. So the first two are white in color or clear. Um, little off, off colors of yellow. And uh, this one moves into solid red territory. Um, we call this one Bruce. Um, but the tanical is easily the most common one, but presented in oh, such a way that most people struggle to find what it is. I've only really had one person who guessed it blind. Um, and it is. I would have, had you not told me prior to drinking it, I feel confident that I would have. Cause I believe it's, a, you. Thing, I believe it's you. a thing that I find that people commonly lie about that. It doesn't have a flavor. That was one of my favorite onion or like April Fool's Day yeah. posts was I, I've never been able to find it again, but it was like on Bon Appetit or something. And they were like all the, the national chefs like rallying against bay leaves. Yep. Yep. They were like bay leaves had no flavor. They <laughs> added nothing to the food and it was clearly a joke. But I've, I've read articles since that like that, that actually believe that. I think maybe if you're buying the, <laughs> the carbonized bin in a jar for seven years somewhere. Yeah. Like I could see that maybe that doesn't add anything, but go to a good spice shop and get a bag of real bay leaves and mm -hmm. open that up and then tell me that that doesn't have yeah. a very, very pungent and specific or scent and flavor. Fucking tea. Yeah. Um, any herb. If you don't understand an herb, yep. a dry herb, make a tea out yep. of it. But I remember remarking to you when I tasted this for the first time at iron bartender that this drink is what I will uh, serve to anybody that doesn't think that bay leaves taste. Yeah, hundred percent. Because a bay leaf is my favorite herb, and I always say it. And I sometimes get the remark, "What? That doesn't taste like anything." I'm like, "Man, <laughs> sit down. I'll make you some tea." Now I'll just pour him some Bruce, some dry wet Bruce, and say, you. "Taste that. That's what bay leaves taste." That's Boy. also just spectacular. And the laurel family is so big. Yep. You know, like there's cinnamon leaves are in the same yep. family. Yeah. And man, if you ever get a chance, Charles, you'd love to make some cinnamon leaf tea. Yeah, it's and Lebanon cinnamon and bay leaves are avocado prevalent. Tea, so too. avocado leaves, yeah. Yep, lots of like kind of more of an added flavor. I've yep. never had an avocado leaf. That's you probably have and just haven't known it. Like oh. it's oftentimes in like beans. Okay. Um, as far as my understanding of it goes, I'm not super well versed in its uses in Mexican cuisine, but um, like. It's so cool and like just has this nice like star anise flavor sure. to it that just kind of sings as a back note with with the like richness of the beans. Really cool. So really what I should have done for that Negroni is not done the absinthe rinse and found some avocado leaves because mm, yeah. that would have accented it very beautifully. Or you could get some pimento leaves like I do in a oh, yeah. big jerk that cost way too much money. Way too much money. Eight <laughs> leaves for $30. Excuse me? <laughs> So You're my question, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to cut off where you were going, but you were literally like towing up to the shoreline of what I was going to ask next. So you are somebody who I, going back to Charles's question that I very much admired because I loved sitting at your bar and I would read through the menu and try to figure out, cause you, you threw my brain curveballs sometimes with like what was in drinks. And I loved trying to figure out like, how you got there and then I'd, I'd think about it for a while and then I would get the drink and try and see like okay and then after that I would ask mm -hmm. like I wanted to try and wrestle through could I get there from my perspective knowing these are some things that are in this could I think about what I think that would taste like and then I get it and if I'm close cool if I'm not then I'm like okay really what the fuck is going on here 
But a lot of those, going back to the editing comment that you had made, are based around strip it down to what the spirit is, what the essence of that spirit is. And then how do we build something around that that showcases it, but then also gives somebody like an original twist? What is, where is your base? Is it the single botanical? Like what is it when you're building something that doesn't include alcohol as a beverage, not just dry wet, I'm talking about in general, where, where do you start? Do you start with, I want something that tastes like this and you build backwards or do you find something and then you want to build it forward like that? Both, Does that make sense both, to both work? Okay. You know, like, so um, I, I can take you back to like the, right before we launched the big non-alcoholic menu at Marvel that we called dry. Like, you know, we had two weeks really between we were like coming off of Christmas and then the craziness leading up to new year's. And then we closed for a week. And during that week, it was like all of the work went into launching this new menu and at a time when culturally it was really like starting to pop too. So it, we, we had a feeling this might resonate with a lot of people. We didn't know how much it was much bigger than we thought it would, but you know, like we knew that we needed to go all in. So um, Eric Dayton, the owner uh, had the idea to move all the bottles off the back bar. We found a dry, uh, somebody who was into flowers and she picked a, I mean, that was even just crazy on its own that she, she found a field, um, that I think her brother got married in, um, and he's sober. And so she went out there and in the winter collected a whole bunch of dried flowers and plants Amazing. and then weaved them into these really long, like, I mean, six, seven foot long uh, floral arrangements on the back bar. It really was beautiful. Too. Um, and hung them from the ceiling. It yep. was just, it was, it was everywhere. Um, but like, you know, when that was the first time that I had to build a menu from scratch in a long time and it had to be big and complete. And so I looked at it and I was like, you know, what are the, the gaps? What are, what are the different ways that we can do this? Like one of them was going to be, we needed to add CBD, right? Like that was something that was totally legal. And, mm. you know, how we were going to add it was, was a challenge. Like we had to find something that was water soluble. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but we were like, some people are going to come in here and not want alcohol, but CBD is benign enough. And then we were like, let's go the adaptogen route. So I found a way to like do adaptogens. And so we found all these pieces and we were like, we want everything to fit in there. We wanted a non-alcoholic spirit. And we found one that like the price point worked to put it on the menu. And then, and then there were a couple that were just like, these are things I've been thinking about. This is some weird stuff. Let's go with that. Um, and that was how we, that's how I conceptualized the first menu. And then from that, you kind of like pick all these, you know, I just made a big list as I was like walking around or doing whatever. It'd be like, these are flavors I think are interesting. And then like, where can I match the things? It was less intentional about like the whole of a drink for every one of them. And more like how, how does the menu work as a whole? Like I want somebody to come in and be able to try something that's got, um, that's got an NA spirit in it. I want somebody to come in here and try some adaptogen stuff wants, you know? And so you hit all those different notes and that also like that, that gives a little bit of value. Like NA menus on the whole, cost a lot more than alcoholic menus and more often than not people want to price them lower because there's no ethanol in it right like mm -hmm. alcohol is the value tricky value proposition yep. for the consumer unfortunately right? yeah um and so like yeah that how do you provide value without without making people feel but the effect. cheated mm -hmm. and so the drinks were as much if not more than a lot of the alcoholic drinks we had um, and then as that went on, we just kept like the team kept finding new ways of doing it. Like we had a, some cheap 
like really awesome NA beer that we got from, you know, because it's, there's no alcohol in it, we could just buy it off retail shelves. So mm-hmm. we went to Total Wine and would buy six packs of this stuff called Hen's Best Lager. And yep. it's three bucks for six mm-hmm. beers and it's great in mixed drinks. Like, and it, you don't feel bad if you have to toss the whole thing out. Um, because you know we're paying fifty cents for it, mm-hmm. and so like that's that's a lot as far as an ingredient goes in a in a cocktail. But you know it was worth it to be able to to be able to give that experience. So we we took that, added a little bit of lime juice, some rice vinegar, and some uh, strawberry puree, and then stretched that out with the, the NA beer, and it was like this messed up Radler kind of thing. Yeah, mm. um, so chuggable and so easy to like feel like you were getting something that was substantive and rooted in history and like, you know, just hit all those things. So where, and some of them were like a single note of, you know, milkweed is an ingredient that we were working with the summer before. And we had a bunch of shrub left over from it where I would take milkweed flowers and macerate them with sugar and a little bit of salt and leave those out on the counter for a couple of days till it like really got gummy. And then I'd add a bunch of rice vinegar and let it sit for another week in the fridge and then strain that out. And then like, it just, it was Whoa. grassy and floral and dynamic. That sounds and like fantastic. So cool. And that, that, I mean, that, that was kind of the basis for all of these too, is that like, you know, I still make that every summer. I make a couple gallons of the milkweed shrub and like, I don't, it's, it's a ton yeah. of sugar. You know, I'm using four pounds of sugar to make it <laughs> and I just end up giving it all mm-hmm. away. But like, there's something about that ritual that really like gets me going. You know, it, if I can interject really yeah, quickly, please. a quick digression, something that occurred to me as we were having this conversation and this is the way my marketing brain works is that when you're talking about the value proposition of the NA beverages and people not understanding that it can cost more, what occurred to me, just like a lightning bolt striking me in the head, was Tomo Sakin from uh, Nokashida in Kyoto, who was recently in the Twin Cities doing a cocktail takeover at a couple of different restaurants locally. He calls his cocktails uh, liquid cuisine. And I think that if there's a way to translate to the consumer that this and a beverage, it's not a cocktail in the traditional methodology of, you know, consuming alcohol and making it taste good and, you know, treating it so that it, it's as satisfying as possible. But it's almost like you're getting another dish amidst your evening of dining and drinking that is, it's, it's liquid cuisine. We made you a dish. That's, I think that if we can message that to consumers, it helps to justify $16. Yeah, well, you just paid $16 for a plate of food you had to chew but as much preparation went into this beverage, even though it does not contain alcohol. And how many subpar, like, quick serve 16 to $20 dishes have you had in your life? You know, where this is or something bad that cocktails. is... Yeah, <laughs> this is something that is spectacular, made with, you know, local stuff, made with fresh stuff. Like, that's, again, that's that we have to teach people that. When you, It's funny that you bring up Japanese thought, because, like, think of the meals. I, I mean, the meals I've had at, at uh, Kado... And like the number of times that I've sat down and like I don't drink caffeine, I like I'm, I, I'm a, a, and he away from all these other at, things. At yeah, I don't know me say yeah. But like you sit down and they'll give you just a little glass of buckwheat tea. Yeah, right. Like mm. it's gluten free. It's just it's just toasted grains that are steeped. Like yes. that kind of thing is just really fascinating because it, it again it like it, it's almost a shock to your system. Like it sl- forces you to slow down and just reevaluate like everything you thought was going to happen from this big extravagant meal. Like it's the less is more approach and just something really simply and perfectly presented. Um, yeah, I don't know. We started even in 2017 or 2018, we started giving people like glasses of, of hot tea that was decaffeinated. And so somebody would come in in the winter from, a, a you know, the cold mm. and we would just like, we'd use the same tea 
20 or 30 times because like at whatever strength yeah. it was it didn't matter sure it would just be some peppermint in there mm-hmm. and hot water and that would be it and okay just mm-hmm. and somebody like people would be like no no no, i don't need any more alcohol like oh it's not it's just it's just some warm water basically and yeah like to be able to shock somebody that way was always cool i drank rooibos tea for three years before i found out there wasn't any caffeine in it <laughs> and one of my buddies was like one of my buddies like why do you even drink that i'm like well c- clearly because i like it you know, like, I, it just tastes really good, so I'm going to keep doing that. And, like, you can go ahead and have your Lipton or whatever. Like, this is I'm, – I'm drinking this because I want that flavor. Yeah. Not because yeah. I'm looking for something else laced in it. Japanese tea is a great parallel, too, because what's the difference between a buckwheat or, like, a hojicha tea and, like, a bowl of soup? Because they're both kind of, like, smoky and rich. It's like, mm-hmm. a, it's like a vegan soup, right? Well, so and the lightness already of- is kind of soup. The lightness of a dashi, right? Like, yeah. is basically a tea. Absolutely, it's closer yes. to a tea than than a soup. And exactly. in, by in uh, making most Western it, standards, yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Um, yeah, and it's I, I don't know, it's it's so cool. Like, usually I approach the value proposition in like the cost of the ingredients. You know, if you go into a wine shop locally and you get something that comes from Denmark and it's a non-alcoholic product, there are two that are great. There's a, a sparkling tea and then Muri, which is a blend of different ferments. Um, and both of those come into the same price point that we are, like, I think, the, you know, somewhere between 28 and 35 bucks. Um, and so if people see that and they're like, they know that transportation's an issue coming from Europe, that like, you know, what used to cost $2,000 to get here costs up to fifteen to $16,000 mm-hmm. for the same shipping container. Um, and so like, that's, that's something that people, most people have some exposure to. But then they look at this and they're like, oh, it's local. But the only place that they make bottles that are that can handle the carbonation we do is France, mm-hmm. and the bottles are, you know, most of the cost of the of this mm-hmm. this drink, um, and so like we're basically charging the same amount because we're getting things from the exact same place, um, and I really like your perspective on like thinking of it more from the experience and from like a culinary perspective, yeah. because. I can't necessarily want to go out and tell everybody that like our bottles are super expensive. That's why you got to pay, you know, like that's, that's not sexy or fun. No one wants to hear how much. Nobody wants to hear about it, but that's the reality of it. You know, like (laughs) in this space, everything costs more money now, Mm -hmm. even than it did three years ago. Um, And that's, that's what restaurants are struggling with too. You know, like if they open our bottle, like, are they going to get the money out of it that they need to, to be able to survive? And so while I know that we're not a great fit for most restaurants, like we would be if we were in a canned or single serve operation. Um, you know, the places that do get it are, are awesome. And, you know, single meals or weddings, those types of things, like where you know you're going to drink everything and there's a, there's a culture of excess, that's when it, we really get to, like, shine. And that's when I really, like, my, my heart swells. I love that. You know? Oh, man. Yeah. Building flavors yeah. and such. Yeah. I, a starting point isn't really... For me, that's not the notion that I ever approach something from unless I have, like, a really beautiful ingredient on hand. But in regard to, like, making beverages, uh, balance is critical to me, especially as someone that I have a salt tooth. I, that's, like, one of the things, one of, my, one of my things that I've coined myself is I'm a salt tooth. Um, so th- having, like, elements of, like, saline solution or using MSG, things like that in cocktails uh, is really important to me. I also look for flavor characteristics that, many people don't care quite as much for obviously we both like bitterness Mm -hmm. qualm and myself we talk about that a lot on the show and and it's evident in our love of malort um oxidized characteristics i'm a big fan of actually so it's cool that you brought this up and it actually like just occurred to me that my negroni party was last saturday 
And we both made pretty interesting, fascinating um, takes on the Negroni after having done the Negroni party for as many years as I have. I wanted to try like what I coined a, an, an oxidated um, Negroni, I think for the sake of um, making it evident to anyone who might consume it because it's for some and it is not for others. I used a, um, a Montadillo sherry for the kind of the base of that um, that that oxidized flavor characteristic that I absolutely adore. I use Bonal, um, Luxardo Mirchino, just a little bit of that. Uh, some gin from our friends at Earl Giles. Uh, I did, oh, Campari for the bitterness and, you know, just a, a touch of sweetness via that. And then I did um, Amaro-soaked cherries from St. Agustus in New York as the garnish. And it was just like, I would say it, it leaned on and with the dilution I had tamped down because the the um, smoky oxidized characteristic with the amount of bitterness prior to dilution was too much. The bitterness made everything just a little haywire, but diluting it, I put a cup of water into the batch that I made, uh, brought down the bitterness to such a degree that I thought it was a beautiful complementary bitterness if you like bitterness and you still got all the characteristics that I was looking for in that. So ultimately with that and with anything else that I build, I'm just looking for like, not, you know, sometimes you're looking for different characteristics of something that you're trying to accomplish, but just trying to find great balance in all things and adding flavor characteristics beyond the basics. So that sort of oxidative quality and like bitterness and things like that, that people don't often think of that's, that's frequently my approach to flavors. I like that. It's funny because like I'm, I'm the opposite from you, not in finding balance. Like I enjoy trying to find when everything kind of works in harmony. I, I like that, but I am, I, I try to find a flavor or an ingredient that I want to let shine. And that's been, this is relatively new for me. Um, really kind of started a few years ago when I started making a lot of shrubs at home where I just was making the same fruit shrubs, which super easy buy a bunch of produce when it starts to get squishy i just make whatever is left into a shrub and then you have something that can last longer for soda waters and whatnot but i guess i i caught myself thinking like am i just chasing flavors that already exist like am i just creating something at home that i don't feel like going back out and buying again and if that's the case then am i really being creative mm -hmm. So what I've started doing, and uh, thanks to a previous episode, uh, I've been going to the farmer's market more and going to different ones. And also then we have a few really nice grocery stores that kind of bring in some different stuff uh, around our house. I've been trying to find like, what ingredient do I not make into beverages right now? And how do I, how do I make that shine? And kind of going one mm. at a time. Trying some new things. Right. Instead of making a non-alcoholic version of something I already like, why not try and make something completely different where I'm not thinking like, does this taste just like that? Like, I can't tell you how many people I've had pour me some form of like, it's an old fashioned, but with no alcohol in it. Fine. But like, I don't want to chase that. I want to chase something that makes me go, holy shit, that's really good. I want to go have that again. Not, oh, it's just like this thing that I have everywhere else, but now there's nothing, you know, like there's companies that are adding like a little bit of um, cayenne or habanero into their NA spirit. So it feels right. like alcohol and it burns. I understand that there are people that are, are desperately wanting that. And I'm not saying that that's not okay for them. I'm just saying I would rather look at it from, I guess from like, if I want to start with this one crayon, 
what are three other colors I would want to put on that paper that I think would look really pretty. And that has been a, it's now started to infect my food where now I'm trying to work backwards doing that. Like, how do I, how do I showcase this? Mm. And I love that creative process. Like it's kind of reinvigorated me into that where now it's not like, well, you know, we're, we're not going to be having a drink for the next couple of days. So I'll just do this later. Like now it's like, Oh, well, Hey, I'm already at the store buying food. Let's bring something like this home and let's try and, and make something cool. And I feel like it's a really fun challenge to anybody out there that's like culinarily curious and just likes to mess around. It's a really fun exercise to take something maybe that you already use in food or take something that you don't use at all and then try and bring that into your world and see what you can do with it. You know, like I love, I still remember the moment when um, the woman behind the counter at Penzi's had me smell a bag of fresh bay leaves for the first time. And it was like, oh, this is what it's supposed to be. That is a moment I will never forget because now it changed how I felt about them and how I started bringing them into more things. I think that if you look at um, things that way, you don't have to know everything about how to build a beverage or a dish. It's what do you think would, would go well with that? Or Google it in one of your 191 tabs and then start finding things that kind of inspire you. And when you can build it that way, you can, you can make your own original thing. Like it doesn't, nobody has to give you permission or a name to make, it doesn't have to be an echo of something that exists. Just make something that you think tastes good. And it's a fun exercise to try and let that thing shine. Like, I love that. Well, and in a totally different direction, um, one of the, one of my favorite uh, creative uh, explorations I did was uh, we, we auctioned off a dinner that was held in the French period room in in Mia. Um, And it was, you know, whatever, 25 people or something like that. And part of the experience was cocktails that were paired to artwork throughout the museum. Fascinating. And so I got to Wait, do when this. was this? Because they've been doing events like that the last couple of years with a couple of different chefs. Was that? And I think that those have been around exhibits, right? And this was sure. like, this was sure, before sure. they really, they, they weren't trying to pair it with like the Botticelli dinners were awesome last fall yeah. and winter. And like, they, you know, Jamie Malone was doing that would have been consumed there and it was it was beautiful and awesome and um like this wasn't quite that polished and there was only one dinner that was served and mm-hmm. so like they gave me three different pieces of art and each of them then I had to pair to make a cocktail with it and like I had a month or something and so you know the first one was a fertility statue that was from mm-hmm. you know that was thousands of years old from Japan I know and, the one you're talking about. And it was just like right that. in the atrium there. Like there's yep. just a little room off to the side and that was all about fertility statues. Um, and so like I, I traveled up to uh, St. John's University where the, the, the resident ceramist there, um, Richard Bresnahan, like gave me 25 or 30 of his his signature cups that he doesn't sell. You know, like he's he was the the first non wow. like the he's the fifth in the line of the family line of, of ceramics, but he was essentially adopted in and his story is wild. Like it something to do with um, it, worth, worth opening a tab on him because he, uh, it's <laughs> worth opening a tab on. He, <laughs> he was, he was believed to be the incarnation of a, of a Buddhist religious figure. Mm-hmm. And like the family then like brought him in and then taught him everything. And prior to that, he was kind of shunned by, like you know, some white kid in the in Japan in the seventies, 
and like the the figure walked into the the, the room and was just like it's my brother and next thing you know he's just like brought in taught everything and like his his stance is really cool and his his ceramic work is just beautiful um but like so i that was that was i had that before i had anything that went into it yeah and then i built things i was like okay so this is that like ripping cold ceramics you know like usually you're drinking things out of hot ceramics it's like what is it like if that's like bone like just winter dead of winter cold yeah and how do you like express flavor through that so you know i layered uh essentially a riff on a vesper more or less where um it was mostly shochu that had a little bit of cherry blossom in it Mm. um called nadeshiko really cool stuff (laughs) I made a um, shochu cherry blossom drink for the podcast yeah, a couple months really, ago. Really, <laughs> really great stuff. I mean, if did you yeah. use Nadeshiko? No, no. I mean, we made um, daiquiris, daiquiris, and I oh, I made yeah. a, a like a Japanese daiquiri in effect and used because cool. I I'm an idiot and buy expensive ingredients and I have these cherry blossoms that cost way too much for like a tiny bag, yeah. but they're such a beautiful flavor. Oh, and Fussy. and they're like they're so seasonal and cool, especially if they're. Have you had them packed in salt? Yeah, yeah, that's right. how they. Yeah, that's yeah, how they yeah. come yeah. when I order them. The like cool. little bag they're packed in salt. What noise? What sounder did you just? Do? <laughs> I just said toasty. <laughs> yeah, so I built the drink based off of that ceramic vessel, which was a connection then to the art, and like put a giant oh, ice cube in that's there. Fascinating. Spritzed rose water over the top. And, oh, like, it was. Yes. It was just. And then you know the next drink could have been more different because it was paired with a a French noblewoman who married a Spanish nobleman. And so she was uh, in a Spanish room wearing French clothes. Mm. And it was like the juxtaposition of Spain and France. And so I based it off an, an Adonis cocktail, mm. which is, uh, you know, so I used like oxidized wine and, and French vermouth and like oh, that, that pairing. <laughs> what? You know, like, but again, it just kind of comes down to the, the more restraint I had, like the greater my creativity was. Yeah, and absolutely. So, like it wasn't about the drinks. It was just about this artwork. Um, and you know, I mean, it just, I, I still come back to that, like as, as one of the more, uh, fulfilling creative pursuits I've been in. That's an incredible yeah. exercise because it's, you know, you efforted to make it so that people could taste a piece of art in effect, because yeah. you're interpreting what the art would taste like that's, and that blows my mind. Yeah, like I'm just still tripping over that. Well, and like everything I used for that, that the drink I paired with the, the noble woman was like, um, was available and relatively unchanged from what we see today. Mm. You know, like Ranciosec has been produced in that region of of uh, Spain for like millennia. Mm-hmm. Like it's oh, just yeah. fully oxidized it's, wine. Wow. And, you know, that th- those techniques have been relatively yeah. unchanged. And like, so she probably had tried it. Mm-hmm. Maybe didn't love it. Maybe wow. didn't drink it regularly, yeah. but it was around. <laughs> just crazy. Wow, that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah that's... Super cool. If you ever get the opportunity to pair drinks at, at Mia, highly recommend it. Yeah, I would love to. Hey, cheers. We're coming we're coming down the bend. So final topic. God, I love that. That's really good. That Bruce is so damn good. Please. Okay, so our final topic of conversation, Peter. Where do you stand? In the eternal struggle of should I stay or should I go during summers in a place that is sometimes hard to live in during the cold months, do you soak up summers here or do you still travel in the summer? I mean, I think for me, travel in this, like, the last few years of my life have really revolved around food Mm -hmm. and family. And so, like, 
I travel about as much in the summer as I do in the winter. And, and like most of my food traveling happens in the, in the shoulder seasons, you know, harvest what I haven't harvested wild rice in a while, but that's something that like, just that I, I love to do. Um, we have a, a sugar bush up North. So in the spring we're up North for a couple weeks. Um, and like, it, it just hasn't been, you know, having a newborn COVID happening. Like we just haven't traveled a lot, mm. um, except for within the state. Sure. You know, and like sitting by a lake in the summer is just so wonderful. We got so many great state parks here that like that. So like, I, I almost think I, I'm more outside in the winter than I am in the summer to mm. some extent, like as far as like being purposeful about it, you know, we've got this cabin that's, it's new, but we, we decided not to put in running water electricity into it. Um, and I think my dad's about to put a solar panel array up there. So we'll have some, some electricity, but you know, like we just go up there in the middle of winter and you're just, it's this like perfectly almost too hot room with everything you need. And it's like, it, it kind of gives you that, like kind of coming back to restraint again and, and restrictions that like, there's nothing you need up there. You just bring a few decadent things or not. And like can just spend a week up there and like recharge and not have the burden of cell phones or Wi-Fi or yeah you know like any of that and so that's I'm I'm much more of a winter shoulder season person than I am a summer person um, you know summer is okay. like kind of meant for naps and like in the, in the middle <laughs> of the day I kind of lay low and at night I just you know I'll do my mowing and I'll I'll get outside and garden and that kind of stuff but. Yeah, like, man, sticking around all year. I'm here. I'm just here for the seasons. My uh, my Norwegian ancestors are cheering you on right now. That is a very, very Scandinavian <laughs> thing to go up, like, go from you know the the bright and beautiful and humming city to a very, very rustic cabin and just get away. Like that is that is the essence of be away from people, be away from everything, and just kind of. I think it's funny that you said recharge at a place that doesn't have uh, electricity. It's almost like unplug. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, eliminate electricity from the uh, from the equation. Yeah, we're batteries, and sometimes our devices take energy away from absolutely. Us. And there's something about like, it's not that it like the the term rustic is thrown around as a thing that like you're you're lacking something, right? Like you're you're, you're expecting it to be like you don't you don't have the big stove, you don't have you know, a hot tub or you don't have, you know, like we don't have water around us. Like it's, it's in the middle of the woods with great purpose. Like there's, there's not, you know, we don't go swimming up there in the summer. It's kind of miserable in the summer. It's too buggy, you know, like it's yeah. just, it's, there's, there's water everywhere, but it's like low swampy stuff. Right. Um, and you know, we're not that far from lakes and rivers that are abundant in food, but like, you know, to go up there in the summer, we just go up there for the day and do a little work. But in the winter we can go up there and it's just like, it's like the the world is is presented for you in a different way, and it's much more expansive than if we were like staying at a hotel or at a at some place that yeah, had like more hideaway. Oh. Yeah, mm. like we can't drive up there in the winter. We have to th- strap on snowshoes and hike up the hill. And oh, that's great! You know, I I really love that. Yeah, there are places you can get. You know, Airbnb is full of that that kind of experience. But like, highly sure. recommend it. Mm. Um, yeah, it is. It's a recharge. I don't like for me. I don't really know that the tra- that travel or anything like that is affected by the seasons. I when I want to go somewhere, I just want to go somewhere. And there are times when I I usually feel it in February into March when winter won't stop, where I do feel a little bit of submission, where I'm like I just can't do another day where I walk outside and it hurts to breathe in. 
I still force myself to do it, but that is where I do dream a little bit of, of travel getting away. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But especially as <laughs> the greed of humanity is slowly pushing the planet into intolerable weather everywhere. I don't really know that summer is anything that I can escape. I just enjoy sunlight. I, I do. Mm-hmm. Nighttime is where I feel the most comfortable because I feel like I'm stealing hours away from the rest of the world. But sunlight makes me feel good. Like, I very much enjoy that. And I have noticed myself feeling better with just how beautiful and bright and sunny it's been with, like, a lack of clouds around here. Um, But I do like, for me, I guess, I like trying to find different ways to experience not just summer, but, like, all of the seasons. I've been working on this theory in my head that I'm going to write about at some point this year. But where, like, physically... If, as long as we keep moving, if you keep a full range of motion, kind of like what we were talking about in the service industry, like just by being active, you sort of like maintain a, at least a baseline of, of motion and exercise and all that. And I think that inside us is the same thing where if we get into too rote of a routine, lethargy just starts to, it, it atrophies our brains, our hearts, our souls, if you want to go that far where when you're not being challenged for anything new, you get into, like, you're almost on autopilot. And so I've been trying to force myself to do more things. Like this last winter, I went on more walks with friends than I've ever gone on in winters before, and it was incredibly rewarding. And even on the days we didn't want to, like, you go and you just feel you feel good. You come inside and your cheeks are all rosy. And so in the summer, I've been trying to do more things like, yes, I'm going to be sweaty. It's, it is hot out. It is thick. Mosquitoes are a thing. If we're anywhere near trees and, and shade, like, okay, so what are we going to do about it? Like, well, let's, let's go do this. Let's go walk. I know lakes where half of it is shaded and half of it's in the bright sun. Okay. Let's go for a walk there. Uh, anything I can come up with just to try something a little bit different and to keep pushing myself to experience that. Like, yes, it is very, it was very, very hot today. And uh, I had a, a tea with a friend and the sun was beating down. I was like, man, it's hot. And then I thought, actually, let's reframe that. Man, it's fucking beautiful. It is a great blue sky. There is a gorgeous sun out there. And I am wearing shorts and a shirt and I am fine. Like, we're good. And if you start to reframe things like that, I think you sort of start appreciating everything a little bit more. So I'm just trying to be more act proactive about Mm -hmm. celebrating that and then finding something good to do with that and trying to change it up. Like if there's somebody that, if there's one of my friends is doing something that I don't normally do, I'm like, well, can I try? You know, like that's how I ended up playing Frisbee golf for the first time. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. It's a sport I don't really understand. And I've never been, I was never the Frisbee guy in college where they just stand out and throw a Frisbee back and forth. So I was like, I mean, that looks like that, but like longer. And then I went and you know what it was? The activity didn't matter. It was walking through a giant field of nature and every now and then waving high at other people that are doing the same thing. And then on top of it, I got a little bit of exercise. Like, that's great. But I needed to have somebody tell me that they wanted me to go frisbee golfing with them for me to actually go out and do that. At the end of the day, it was like, I played frisbee for a little bit, but I got to walk for a couple miles and I didn't see any cars or hear any other people outside of like, oh, good shot. You know, like, that's great. Those are, I want to find more things like that. Disc golf's also a great, uh, a great way to go foraging because disc golf courses yeah. oftentimes like border on a public land. Yeah. And so you can just like take a couple steps. You're like, oh, 
there's a tree that might have some morels underneath it. Yeah. And so, like, you're out there tossing, and then you're just <laughs> like, okay, I'm just going to, like... Ooh, is that an elm? This is gray area. This <laughs> might be private property. Uh, I think one of my... Uh, uh, what are my discs over here? I'm just looking yeah. for the disc. <laughs> it took me five or six times of finding enough mushrooms that I needed to take my shirt off before I remembered to bring a bag. <laughs> you know, like that. <laughs> I, th I think if I went out disc golfing now, I haven't for years, but if I did it, I'd, I'd probably forget the bag. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> that sentence by itself is also pretty beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> it took me five or six times before I figured I, <laughs> before I didn't have to take my shirt off. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, th the way I'm... I looked at this was often if I go traveling in the summer, someone will remark to me and listeners that are in any area where the climate is a lot nicer this time of year than it is in other times of year. Someone will inevitably remark to me, why are you leaving this place that is at its best now when all the activity is happening now? And for me, it's not about weather. It's about, it's about experience and it's about, uh, all the limitless possibilities and um, the nature of people in the community in which I reside is that in the summer, people are more active. There are more events. There are more things happening. I also have the flip side of the coin that my wife, as aforementioned, is a school teacher. Mm -hmm. So she can travel freely in the summer. So there is a part of me that's like, wow, there's so much happening in my city now, but I'm electing to leave it's more that notion. Do I regret it? No. We're going to Europe in July, and I'm going to love it as much, if not more, than anything that I would be doing while I'm here. But there's also... <laughs> I'm in danger. Yeah? Shania? <laughs> no, I was... Uh, I'm in danger. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we are getting close to leaving for Denmark. Oh, yeah. Uh, I thought it was maybe I'm in danger for the amount of food we'll be consuming. I mean, I'll hit Shania. Shania. <laughs> it had to be done. It's so much better because it's a live clip, so there's just a crowd cheering behind it too. Yeah. Also, I'm glad that the volume's up because last time the volume was our volume now was a little low. But I like to travel in the winter. I think the older I get, the more I I want to um, escape the mundanity of winter. It's not about weather because I love the cold. I was born and raised in the cold. I just want more variety in my life in. My wife's working and I'm working and it's the dead of winter. March always gets me. Mm. March fucking kills me. I'm just like, I'm done. I need to, I need to see something new. Yep. It's not about the thoughts about there's so much repetition. So those are the months where it'd be easy for me to say, I'm going to leave for this month, jump four or five different places, regardless of the weather. I go to New York in December every year. It's not really about how warm it is. It's about having opportunity so I will say, yeah, I don't, I don't regret traveling in the summer, but you do kind of want to be omnipresent sometimes when there's like thing, when there are things happening here at home while you're away. And it doesn't matter what time of year it is that that's going to happen to us. Anytime you leave, you might miss an opportunity. I, my, my life is, as an adult is just comprised of saying, Things will slow down in a couple months, and then I'll figure it out. Like, there's never a time that there's not shit going on. Right. So I guess maybe I just don't feel that. Like, I've I've involved myself in so many different threads that there's just always pressure to be around to do something. So it is nice. I guess it's, if I'm going to go somewhere, I'm just going to go somewhere if the opportunity is good. Like, I just want to go. Of course. Yeah. Like, I, I want to go somewhere all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I want to balance that. I, I don't... Um, 
don't have wanderlust, and I actually hate that term. I just like to experience things, and I, I never feel an itch to leave. It's an itch to experience things. But if our good friends and friends of the podcast, Con and Nast, decided that they wanted to turn this into a travel show, oh. I would not be opposed to that. We'll see what happens in October, huh? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's interesting that both of you mentioned like March being times when you're like kind of feeling it here. Yeah. I highly recommend finding, uh, starting a sugar bush because like maple syrup collection happens the end of March, early April. And it's like, we're on the edge of our seats. Like we start thinking about it in February. My dad thinks about it all year round. It's like firewood. He's got to get the equipment ready in January. And it's like, everything's clean mm. and set up. And then he starts like going out there and putting taps in in early March. And we get these like daily reports and it's, it's one of the time it, it ends up being one of our favorite times of the year because it's just like, there's so much anticipation and nature is the thing that like is going to give you all this, this sap. Like we get more sugar than we can eat as a family for sure. Um, we don't sell it or anything, but like, it's just, it's just a little bit more than, than we can eat. I mean, by probably an order of four, yeah. um, is, do you know, like, I, this is how absolutely dumb I am when it comes to this topic, but would, like, birch trees be on the same timeline? For like, sure. do they all For they sure. all start flowing around? Because I, I do have, um, we have people who we consider family that have started harvesting both syrups, and that actually... That's a great idea to maybe hit them up and see if I could just go up and be a part of that. Yeah, and you kind of have a connection to Birch as well. Absolutely. A lot of your experiences. Yep. Your work. Yeah. It's just such a cool time to be outside. And, like, you know, being outside in the winter, it's, like, it's so still. Mm -hmm. And in the summer, it's, like, you know, you, the, you can't go into a, a, a deciduous forest and see very far, mm -hmm. right? But, like, at the end of winter, like, kind of in that, that shoulder season, like, right when things are starting to melt a lot, the, the the environment goes from like white and stark to like brown and muddy and dynamic and like things aren't quite popping up but like you can just you can just see that like everything's about to burst yeah. and then you leave the sugar bus and you go home and you're like and that's just like suddenly everything erupts flowers are everywhere birds are everywhere people are out walking a lot more yeah. it's like you you know late april is actually the time of the year when we feel like the like the most stagnant you know, like right when things are actually popping and we've already started thinking about gardening a lot. And, you know, like that's that's when we're, we're like that that March thing just really changes the perspective that we have about, you know, what the end of winter looks like, you know, because it's like that's when everything is just rushing forward to, to erupt into the world. Honestly, that's a it's a, a wonderful thing that you just gave both of us, because I've I've never once pondered that as a way of breaking out of the, the tedious monotony of the end of winter. So my friend, Rob Gagne, fellow, what up, Rob? fellow member of Club Caraway, uh, this winter was trying to coax me into uh, making maple syrup. But first of all, he was late to the game. Second of all, he was trying to make me buy all the equipment, and it was his idea. <laughs> so I told him, why don't we think about this, and then maybe next year we have a conversation about it, because... I didn't bring this idea to the table. You did. Uh, but, yeah, Peter, maybe we'll talk about your processes uh, in, in the coming months here. And mm -hmm. maybe Rob will get his wish, but he's going to have to buy some of the equipment. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have to be expensive. You can Good. Do it on, you can do it yeah. on your stove with existing equipment. So I got a, I have like, this big, beautiful Yoder grill. It's 48 by 24. And so he instantly started looking up pans that can go over my grill. And I'm like, I'm not buying a $600 pan for a hobby that I didn't ask for. 
And you could get a lot of syrup out of a pan that big. <laughs> yeah. it might even be scissor. That's what he said. I believe that is his exact quote. You get a lot of syrup out of a pan that big. <laughs> but St. Saint, Saint John's does it, and the yeah. Landscape Arboretum both have pretty cool, good, big-size operations. But, cool. like, if you just move a little further out, there's operations that are, that are moving in the woods that, like, you just wouldn't expect. And you walk in, and it's like somebody's jerry-rigged, you know, like they've got 4,000 trees that are, like, you know, pump stations along the way to move it back closer to the, the place that you cook it. They use reverse osmosis systems that, you know, typically reverse osmosis, the, like, waste mm-hmm. is the solids, is the, like, stuff in there. And with birch and, and maple sap, like, the way the waste is actually what you want. You want to get rid of the water. Yep. And then that saves you all the, the energy of, like, having to cook it down. You know, we don't, yeah. we don't go that far. We just got a single pan, and, you know, we can do about 100 gallons in a day we're really moving but like there are places that that can't even begin to cook without six seven hundred gallons of syrup it's so funny thinking about that i was at st john's for four years and it was at a time in my life when i didn't give a shit about any of this and now there's like there's so many amazing things that happen there like from historical stuff to art stuff to Mm. uh even as a non-christian to biblical stuff uh to all the all the stuff that they're doing like when i was in school there and again this is 20 plus years ago um, St. John's had the highest land per student of any college in the U.S. outside of UC Berkeley because they have a huge farm study that they're doing right now. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, it was the most land per student. You are remote. Their radio stations back then didn't even broadcast on campus. Yeah. So it, it really was neat. And maybe that's something that we could check out to go see if we could play with other yeah. people's equipment. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds fantastic. Well, and, and, you know, you look at a place like St. John's, the decision makers are people who have devoted their life, not just to the study of academia, but like the study of humanity mm-hmm. and like connection mm-hmm. and, and, you know, like meditative activities of a different sort. So like bread making and syruping and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ceramics, like all of those things are just like, it's a really different perspective. And similarly, as a non-Christian, like I... I really have a lot of respect for faiths that like when they're presented in that way. Yep. I agree. Mm. And also, even if we just take the drive, it's worth it to bring some of that monkery bread home. Oh, stuff's delish. Well, I got to say, Peter, I didn't think that this episode was going to get sappy. And then you started talking about, (laughs) 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 I'm just kidding. I'm not going to let the whole thing play. (laughs) (laughs) What do you say? Yeah. This has uh, been a lot of fun, and thank you so much. Uh, thank you for sharing dry wit with us. Um, as of right now, how far out is this product reaching? We're just in the Twin Cities. Okay. Um, you know, like we're we're self distributing in part just so we can maintain connection to the places that we're distributing to. Um, Do any of your retailers ship that you're aware of? None. No. Nobody ships. None yet. Um, okay. We we did get approval in the last month or so that our product shelf stable as is. So we can we can begin the process of figuring out shipping, but that's cool. kind of a whole new bag of worms we gotta we gotta sort through. Um, I'm not necessarily hoping to learn a ton about internet, um, everything SEO and you know online sales and all that. But um, at the call same time, call me if you want help with that stuff. I, I will definitely call you. There's where uh, where can people find you so that they can uh, keep tabs, especially if they're not from here and they want to see if potentially they can have it shipped to them yeah. someday. Absolutely. I mean, our website, drywit.com, um, our Instagram, uh, drywitdrink, uh, both of those places we, we talk avidly about the, the new places we're at locally and will certainly be the, place, the, the location where we advertise when we're, when we're going national. 
Um, I know you have some really beautiful photos in process that I saw some teasers of like a month ago. Oh yeah, well someone we someone photographed your bottles. I don't remember. Yeah, what we the had photographer was um, but they were really beautiful. Kevin Kramer, a local yeah. photographer, yeah, does yeah, a lot of work for for Target and, yeah. and MSP Mag. Um, like great guy, and he took some beautiful photos of the bottles for the website. Um, so we're basically, you know, we built our website in Shopify so that when the time for comes, sure. we don't have to do anything yeah, other great. than just like turn the store on and go. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's cool. We've we've been spending a lot of time connecting with nonprofit groups that are doing dinners and because that's a way we can kind of connect with farmers and, you know, oftentimes nonprofit meals are chef driven and creative in that way. But they're, they're always looking for a new way to like get people rooted and grounded in a meal and serving something non-alcoholic said. So, yeah. um, sure. greener pastures was one that we did where we, we, I got to sit through two dinners listening to different, uh, beef farmers or beef ranchers talking about their process and like, you know, putting back into the soil and all that. Amazing. Um, that, that's, that's what really gives me energy is being able to connect to meals like that in a way that is, is genuine and, and can really like change perspectives. Yeah, this would be a great product for us to also have on hand here at Club Caraway because we have some members who don't drink and always looking for something to sip on, Mm -hmm. especially when we're having social hours. And sometimes, you know, I got to think of how we can be inclusive of everybody that's that's a member without, you know, just we make a cocktail every week. But having things like this on store shelves is, is critical to making sure that everyone can sit at the same table and break bread and have something to sip. Absolutely. And retail, it seems like we've really designed the packaging to be something that is self-explanatory. Like, you know, from the bottle that you, you mentioned earlier, that the bottle really connotes that we're a wine alternative. And um, so then we put the words on there really intentionally. Like, how can you how can you treat us and use us in a meal? You know, like it's one thing to taste us without context. Mm-hmm. And if you're sitting there, like you might pick a favorite out of the this mix, but that favorite might not work with your dinner. Correct. And yeah. so, like f- treating it like wine, like I am serving this. Which one of these should I go with? And so we tried to give some cues to that to be able to get people to like to the the same point that we're at, where like we we just want it because it, it helps us eat more. I look eat forward better. to exploring these uh, with food. Correct. Because I haven't done that yet. Yeah. Real question though. So you guys are are in every instance have been drinking something that has intoxicating effects in it. in the show, like how does, how does the arc of the show change when you're not drinking? Right? Like I feel more relaxed now, Mm -hmm. but I I could imagine that if I was drinking that I would feel like, like the things I say might get a little bit more ridiculous. Mm. I think, or like, but uh, yeah, I think that, um, the, the secret sauce for our program is that, People get more comfortable, but it has nothing to do with the alcohol. Totally agree. Yeah. And because we allow people to consume as much as they care to, with the baseline being six one-ounce shots, if they care to partake in that standardized method, here's a here's a spoiler. We like to talk about how the sausage is made. When I read the re- uh, preamble for the show, we make clear to state that if at any point you don't want to do the cheers with us, Movie magic, baby. They can't see you. Mm -hmm. You don't have to take the shot. So we say that to every guest. But even with that baseline, if they do the six shots with us throughout the conversation, perhaps some of our guests think that one of the reasons they're so comfortable by the end is because of the alcohol. But I assure you that it's because we are good at disarming people. We just have a good, we have balance here, like the cocktails we were discussing earlier. 
we have a great balance of uh, capability to bring comfort to our guests if they come in and they aren't sure what they're walking into. And I think that it's nice to have the experience that we just had because I think it bears further credence to that, that we're feeling at ease and comfortable with one another and we just had a fantastic conversation. It has nothing to do with the contents of the beverage. The beverage is a great complimentary feature of our conversation because this is delicious and we were able to discuss it, but it has no intoxicating effects and it, ha- it didn't change the trajectory of our comfort or the way that we um, uh, were able to uh, evoke our, our messaging to listeners and to one another. You know, I, I, I agree with you 100% on all of that. And I think that um, a lot of times it ends up being a little bit of a, a safety blanket where people can feel that it was because they had a couple drinks and then they just loosened up. But it's, I mean, it is very intentional for both of us uh, in how we write our questions and how we present ourselves to people that that's almost like a, it's almost more of a red herring. Like we're giving you a safety blanket because that's what you know, but that's that's a placebo. Like the, the point of sitting around and talking is to sit around and talk. And I will admit because... ADD and busy hands, I just enjoy having something that I can sip on because eating on a podcast is about the worst audio you can have. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but shout out to Kieran. But um <laughs> but but uh but ha- just having anything is is quite nice because again, you brought this up. Like it's about being communal and sharing something together. And beverages work really well because they're not very noisy. And you can just take a sip and, and keep going. Um, you know, there's there's some funny moments that have happened when people have gotten a little bit banged up, but there's also mm-hmm. some moments that you know we've had. Yeah, to don't tailor. get us wrong. In, in <laughs> almost ninety episodes, there are definitely some people who had probably too much to drink. Who probably the next day said like, "Wow, I got a little weird at the yep. end there." That's happened a few times. Mm-hmm. But that you know, but at the end of the day, like that's that's part of the fun too. Mm-hmm. Is that's all still even when our show has been the absolute fucking craziest, it's all still buttressed under you're in a safe place and we'll make sure that, you know, you get home safely and we're having a good time. So all of that, when it comes in with that safety, I think the hope is that we're going to set this up as in like, Oh, this will help you calm down. But really you might not even touch that drink for, for the first 20 minutes. And by the time we start talking, there's, you're not affected by anything yet. So, you know, there's, we we also sometimes, depending on if we know the guest or if we have an idea, we'll tailor it so that kind of near the end it gets a little bit goofier or funnier. Yeah. Just because it's like, who doesn't like talking about hilarious things or something like that? But it's also like, we're, we're not posing questions that are pinning somebody down. We're trying yeah, yeah. to have a good time. Right. We're not trying to disarm anybody with alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, thank you again. Uh, Charles, you want to throw anything else out there? Let's ditch this popsicle stand. All right, man. Somebody get the tab. Somebody get the tab.